2022. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Monday, January 22nd, 2024, 5.30 p.m. meeting of the Measure U Community Advisory Committee. Happy New Year. Welcome to the new year. The meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Member Rueb? Here. Member Sala? Here. Member Macias? Here. Member Wolf? Here. Member Gorris? Is currently absent. Member Georgioff? Here. Member Bird? Here. Member Pascal? Here. Member Diaz is currently absent. And Chair Dickinson? Here. Thank you. We have quorum. And may I share the information that Member Rivera has stepped down from the committee? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I, I, let me say that a little, little bit louder. Member Rivera has stepped down from the Measure U Community Advisory Committee. She serves on the city's community ambassador as a, one of the city's community ambassadors and was told she can't serve in both capacities, and she chose them and not us. But they are lucky to have her. So um, we'll be looking forward to, uh, she's a, the mayor's appointment, so we'll be looking forward to a timely appointment from the mayor. Um, I would like to remind members of the public and chambers that if you would like to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaker's slip when the item begins. You will have two minutes to speak once you're called on. After the first speaker, we will no longer accept, accept speaker slips. We will now proceed with today's agenda. And first, if you are able, please join us in rising for the opening acknowledgments in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisenan people, the Southern Maidu Valley and Plains Miwok, Patwin Winton peoples, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of, of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. And now can you remain standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Our first item today is approval of the consent calendar. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on the consent calendar? Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips for this item. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Uh, are there any members, commissioners, who would like to speak on this item? Yeah, <laughs> um, I'd like to um, bring me, uh, item two up for discussion. In the meantime, can I get a motion on, or we'll wait for a motion on both items. And I need to, so, uh, so part of our, our work plan was approved in, November? Yes. November by budget and audit and 
moved forward to council who received and approved. So, uh, the measure review committee approved the work plan in November. And, uh, Budget not approved in November. We approved it uh, in January. Oh. The work plan. Not oh, okay, wait a minute. So, the, yeah, no, I was, uh, no, I was referring to the work plan, which was approved by PP&E in January. Yes. And referred to council, which has not had it for receive and file on their agenda yet. They don't, council does not need to see the, or approve the work. Oh, okay. Yeah. So staff tells me council does not need to see that. So the work plan, which is, um, I think, attached to this item. Item two. Yeah, to item two is, is approved. And... And the, so the work plan is approved officially by PP&E. If we want to, um, staff and I had a conversation um, that highlighted that we have some items for presentation and some items for discussion without presentation. Um, and that if we want a presentation uh, around our discussion, we should add it to our agenda log in order to um, keep faith with the approved work plan, but still um, provide the presentations we might need to help us through various items. And I think this came up because we've got our presentation tonight from community response, which we're looking forward to. Um, and then we have a discussion item on affordable housing, which does not come with a presentation. So that, that just, by way of process, highlights how, if we want presentations uh, on things, we should add them to the agenda log um, and track them with our work plan, but not change our work plan. And with that, can I move the Unless people have questions or further discussion on this item. Yeah, sure. Ah. Um, just one thing to call out, which is we do on our work plan have something scheduled for February, but we will not be meeting in February. So it says expenditures related to 9-11 and fire services. Um, that won't, we won't be present. Should we move that to the March great, meeting? Great question. What, March looks pretty full. And March is also, I expect, when we will be doing some heavy work on our budget re recommendations. So is, is the pleasure of the committee to move this to, move that February item to March or move it further into the year? Thoughts? Perhaps May then, because it looks hmm. a little bit lighter. Maybe. I will just quickly add, um, and I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have the information directly in front of me, but my general understanding is there is not much of Measure U that is allocated towards specifically 911 and fire services. Um, the fire department does receive some Measure U funding, for example, for some of their diversity outreach, um, but it would be sort of a stretch to, to think about that in the context of 
um, 911 response. So I did, I did it, we could basically consolidate that item and um, just while we're on the topic, um, one of the things we could do, um, it'll be more relevant for future budget years, but it might be helpful for the committee to iron out now is um, for the discussion topics, rather than having specific topics for um, discussion that are budget priorities or budget categories, we could just have a running general budget priorities discussion that would then give you a little more flexibility as to which topics you wish to discuss um, in, in that sort of agenda item. And then if you, separately you have specific presentations that you want to request, um, we could take those up as part of the agenda log. Thank you. That, that's very helpful. Uh, the pleasure of the committee move this, I move it from the non-existent <laughs> February meeting to May, June. We could make it in March as part of the general. Oh. If you wanted to consolidate it, yeah. March. Okay. I'm hearing. I'm seeing heads nod. So, March. March it is. Thank you for uh, <laughs> for noting that. I hope we don't have to go back to PP&E for that. Anything on this item before we take a motion to approve the consent calendar? Member Pascal. We have a motion. Do we have a second? Member Wolf, thank you. Call the roll. Thank you. Uh, members, if you could please unmute your microphones. Member Rueb? Yes. Member Sala? Yes. Member Masias? Yes. Member Wolf? Yes. Member Gorris? Is absent. Member Georgioff? Yes. Member Bird? Yes. Member Pascal? Yes. And Member Diaz? Yes. Thank you. The motion passes. Oh, oh my apologies. Chair Dickinson? <laughs> yes. Thank you. The motion passes. My apologies. <laughs> no problem. Um, we will now proceed to the discussion calendar. Item number three is overview of the Department of Community Response. And we have uh, Brian Pedro, Interim Director, here to present. Thank you. Welcome. We appreciate you being here. Good evening. Got nothing else to do. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We're 12 hours into the workday. Let's keep on going. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, yes, uh, I'm Brian Pedro. I'm the interim uh, director for DCR. Uh, and uh, we'll get started on doing an overview of where our Measure U funding is going. Um, I'd like to start with our mission statement um, and our vision because I think it's, uh, with any department, I think it's significant to know uh, what our mission and vision is so we know what direction we're going and, and uh, if, we're, if we're meeting our uh, objectives. Um, so our mission statement is to serve as an alternate response that connects individuals in crisis with appropriate services and treatment options. This mission statement was, um, 
was really the mission statement when when DCR was brought up as the alternate response model to try and come up with a, a response model that uh, we can take some of those calls that aren't specifically 911 related calls. Um, but it still holds true to what our department's uh, statement, uh, mission statement is. And then our vision is offering hope, building trust, and engaging people with dignity and respect with the goal of supporting them in a path towards recovery, wellness, and self-sufficiency. Um, I think really this is our everyday uh, the true essence of our, of our everyday mission of, of going out and uh, working with our clients. A um, little bit of history, uh, it's uh, one of the youngest, if not the youngest department in the city. Uh, we came up July of uh, 2020 and uh, actually uh, stood it up in 21. And again, uh, like I said, this was to help alleviate some of the, uh, the responses. Um, my background uh, came from the fire department, so I can tell you that there's plenty of 911 fire department calls that were uh, not 911 calls, but uh, there isn't the option to, once a ambulance is, is dispatched to a, a call, <clears throat> our only option with the um, state regulations is to transport to an emergency room. And so we're trying to figure out an alternate response model that, uh, that we can take some of that off of when the individual doesn't need to go to the emergency room. Can we take them to a behavioral health clinic? Can we take them to any other service other than that? So that was the history of why this department was uh, brought up. Um, so is this a breakdown of, um, of our FTEs? Uh, and it's, it's kind of small up there, you can't see it, but we made a few adjustments in our staffing. Um, we removed a senior accounting auditor position uh, from the Office of Director, and then we added an accountant auditor. Um, removed a staff aide from the community outreach and added a program specialist. And then we changed the um, program coordinator to a senior staff assistant. So it was um, shifting some positions around that, uh, that netted us kind of a zero net, but uh, adjusted the positions uh, and actually um, gave us a better working use of the positions uh, with, with better titles that were appropriate. Um, and the, so we have a total of 37 FTEs in the bottom left corner there. You can see that the vacancies we currently have uh, is uh, one administrative assistant from the Office of Director. We have seven uh, neighborhood resources coordinators that are opened right now. <clears throat> we um, are uh, covering that with uh, our HOPE uh, outreach contract. And then we have one uh, program manager uh, position opened right now in our homeless services. Uh, that one is uh, in uh, the recruitment uh, stages right now. Uh, so here's another breakdown of where our FTEs are. So we have uh, six under the Office of Homeless Services. Uh, the, like I said, the program manager position is vacant. Uh, we have a, uh, four admin analysts. One of them is vacant and one is retiring, so we're going to have two positions there. Uh, 25 FTEs in the community outreach. We have the seven uh, NRCs that are vacant. And then the um, Office of the uh, Director, as you can see, we did that shift in staffing there. And then I wanted to point out the uh, incident management team, though it's not uh, specifically under the 
Department of Community Response. I manage that program and we use uh, our FTEs, our, our NRCs within that response uh, as part of our outreach. And I'll explain a little bit more on that, but the incident management team is the team that we stood up for the homeless uh, protocols that um, council uh, gave us in July or August. I can't recall when they approved those. Um, but that's the uh, team that consists of, <laughs> I'm the incident commander of that team uh, out of DCR. We have a uh, uh, police department captain, a lieutenant, and two sergeants. And then we have 16 impact officers that are also part of that team. Um, under that umbrella, we have uh, code enforcement, park rangers, and then our uh, neighborhood uh, resource coordinators that are the 14 DCR staff that run on that team. So those are our teams that uh, go out in uh, coordinated teams around the city, uh, providing outreach and uh, connecting services, and then also providing compliance for the city. Uh, <clears throat> so our division, um, we have uh, three offices here. This is the Office of Homeless Services, and uh, they manage and monitor our shelter programs and um, motel programs. We have our uh, congregate shelters, our youth and women family, transitional housing. And the next uh, slide actually is a better uh, picture of that. But I wanna say that um, uh, if you look at uh, our departments working together, our outreach that's out in the field working and our uh, homeless services that is looking for <clears throat> keeping our shelters and our motel programs, we're working in conjunction to make sure that we're getting people out of the streets and into our shelters. And uh, then that last little blip there is uh, we are daily working with <laughs> Ya Yin and our uh, housing manager uh, to work on providing uh, more housing and uh, getting more people off the streets. Um, this is what our uh, Office of Homeless Services keeps themselves busy doing daily. Uh, these are all of our programs that we're managing. We have the motel programs on the left. Uh, as you can see, there's multiple there. And then all of our shelters on the right. Uh, that is a obviously a daily full-time job to keep uh, these shelters and motel programs going. And uh, that's our uh, homeless services side of the house. And then our Office of Community Outreach is the other side. And <clears throat> this is our, um, our social workers and our outreach specialists that are actually getting out in the field and uh, making contacts and uh, trying to get uh, people to some services and getting them in a, a better place. Uh, Office of Community Outreach has, uh, holds the programs of uh, the contract with Hope Cooperative, and we have two contracts with Hope Cooperative. One is the outreach in the mental health services, so that's the Hope side that is out in the streets uh, with us uh, providing outreach. And then we also have the uh, Hope Cooperative contract that has the um, Outreach and Engagement Center, which is on Auburn Boulevard and runs the Outreach and Engagement Center. Um, uh, we also manage the uh, First Steps uh, community, which is an operator for the uh, 
originally the Miller Park site, and now we've moved everybody over to the Roseville Road site, so they're over there now. Um, we also have the uh, contract for the Safe Choice Security and for Forensic Clean. <clears throat> and I'll break these down a little bit further as we go through this. Office of Director, uh, Strategic Planning, Physical Budget Auditing, uh, have uh, great people in there. Uh, Eva that uh, counts every penny and can tell you where every penny is. Uh, and uh, she's <laughs> fantastic at that for sure telling you where every penny is. Um, we have uh, human resources uh, to make sure that we are uh, hiring and keeping our people informed and trained. And uh, then the rest of it is to uh, keep uh, my schedule nice and full. Uh, they do a fantastic job with that. Um, on the right, I just uh, kind of uh, like you to know that part of our strategic planning uh, is looking at how we can better our system, how we can make it more efficient, how could we could be more effective. And that is uh, a constant effort, um, not only within the department, but within uh, working with our local homeless action plan, the new regional coordinated homeless action plan, and uh, working not only with the county, but with the other cities. Again, this is another look at our incident management team and all the individuals that are involved in our incident management team. Um, few others that we have in here, uh, the 311 system is what we use to uh, deploy our incident management team. Uh, we have worked with them heavily in uh, improving the system, uh, making it easier for the user as well as making it uh, better on our end to use the data that's coming in so we can make our responses a little more effective and a little more efficient by finding out exactly what that call is, uh, is for. Is it uh, just a general concern call? Is it specifically to a violation? Uh, and so we're working with them and IT, and IT is actually upgrading this uh, system. It's, um, it's, it's a new system since, since we're using 311 the most they picked us as the uh, pilot on this, and uh, so we've been working with IT uh, frequently to try and get that system uh, more functional and efficient. Um, and I think we'll move on from there and look at our uh, Measure U funding and our budgets. So we have uh, Measure U funding there. Um, our multi-year projects of uh, 12456279 and then our operating budget is the uh, 5456741 which gives us a total of uh, 17913 and 20 for this year. Now we have a total department project funding as you can see a much larger amount and uh, that is some ARPA funding that's left over and uh, actually there's uh, Half one, two, three, and four in there uh, that gives us that larger total, and uh, all of our uh, extra funding that's used for shelters and other programs that we have. Um, here's our breakdown of the specific Measure U funding. Uh, so, uh, as I said, uh, Hope Cooperative has two contracts with us. This is the Outreach and Engagement Center. Um, 
and so this center is on Auburn Boulevard, uh, and it, as it says up there, it's a 23-hour, seven-day-a-week respite services. Um, it holds up to 50 people, so there's that 23 hours specifically. It gives one hour for that reset where you exit the uh, premise premises, but you can come back in if you're still in good standing, and it starts your 23 hours over again. Um, this has been a fantastic program, and, and the positive exits out of this program uh, are one of the highest that uh, we have uh, in all of our programs, actually. Um, it's, it serves up to 50 daily, but with the weather respite activation, so when we get below that 37 degrees in the winter um, or hot in the, that hot in summertime, then we open it up to 100. Uh, we can actually expand up to 125, uh, and this this uh, center gets used frequently. Um, some numbers up there served uh, 621 uh, clients. Uh, we had uh, uh, activated 27 bed nights and served 869. So activated, um, we've activated 13 times so far this year. This year has been a, a cold, wet winter, and uh, we are. Uh, Likely, with our weather continuing, we're going to exceed last year's number of uh, 27. Um, and we um, also um, expanded our um, our list of contacts to make sure that that message is getting out as, as best as possible. We expanded that out to our police, fire, and um, RT works with us to get the, um, the uh, free ride to uh, our warming center on those nights that were activated. So we work with RT on, on getting that done. <clears throat> um, this is the other side of the Hope Cooperative Outreach uh, and Mental Health Services. So we um, use these to supplement our DCR folks out in the field and uh, get as many contacts as we can out there. Um, in uh, 2023, as you can see, there is over 2,000 general concern calls from, uh, from the HOPE staff. Um, we had over uh, 5,000, about 5,400 total calls uh, that we've, uh, between all of our outreach. Um, so it's a significant number of contacts that we're out there uh, hitting every day. And uh, this contract certainly helps us uh, get people to services. Uh, with this and all of our sites, we uh, have to have some security, 24-7 uh, security on, uh, on the following sites that you see up there. Um, and it's just a needed necessity with, um, with our clientele. Uh, it's just uh, something that we have to have in place. We have a, a lot of behavioral health and um, we have crisis out there. so way to protect uh, everybody, not only the individual, but our staff. Um, so that's a, a fair amount of our funds that are going to security for all of our sites. Uh, this is our first step community, again, that was taking care of our Miller Park, now over at our new site on Roseville Road. Um, great partner. Um, I, I, in looking at the 2023 enrollments, 269 clients um, and provided 3,369 services to individuals. Um, I can't stress um, enough how much work that uh, First Steps is doing for us. 
and again, providing some, some great work and some good positive uh, exits from there. Uh, and then lastly, if you've been following our incident management team at all, we're over 10 million pounds of trash that we've picked up so far uh, around our city um, that comes with a bill of picking that up uh, for the price of uh, 2.3 million. Uh, they are out there every day, all day, and we actually are, I think, wearing them down a little bit because <laughs> we're out there every day, all day. Um, so just from this year alone, as you can see, there's uh, just through uh, January 16th, there's already uh, 418,000 pounds of trash um, and then the needles that go along with that. Uh, and there was a question of who uh, gets the job of counting the needles. Uh, I do not know. Uh, here's some data from our uh, incident management team on the right, uh, again, giving you some of those numbers of um, calls that we're going to. Um, I think the, um, the significance of this is, is the, the incident management team has our outreach teams there, and we are providing a lot of outreach even during that um, cleanup and uh, enforcement actions. Um, I think there's a little... I think there's a little education that needs to be put out there that uh, that there's an impression that we're just going out there with the police department and sweeping encampments. Uh, there's a lot of outreach that goes on even before we get out there. There's outreach that goes on when we're out there. Um, this weekend alone was a good example where we um, had six people um, accept services into our safe grounds, and uh, that was uh, after uh, being tagged for removal, going back out the next day, spending time with them, and deciding to uh, select services. Uh, I think that our new site has really helped that because we have the pallet homes out there now, um, where before it was uh, the tents at Miller Park. And uh, the question was, why go to Miller Park and have a tent when I can be in my tent here, um, not discounting all the services you're going to get at Miller but uh, it's certainly helped us uh, get more uh, acceptance into our new location. Um, uh, what else do we have up here? Well, we have uh, uh, some of our objectives that, that we had for this year. Uh, we did well on uh, just about everything. So uh, the partnership agreement, we uh, just uh, went through that and we're still in the middle of that. We just did a review, our six-month review of looking at the metrics on our partnership, city-county partnership agreement, and uh, we're at 95% hitting all our marks on that. Uh, it's been uh, a great effort on both sides to work together. Uh, we have weekly meetings with the, um, with the city and county staff at at different levels, uh, our outreach teams on one side and then uh, leadership on the other. And uh, everybody is staying in uh, communication so that we all know where we stand and where we're at and what we need to do to work better together. Uh, so it's been working well. Um, we do receive from, uh, from Sac Step Forward a daily shelter report. 
and uh, we that waiting list is still uh, unfortunately higher than we want to see, uh, but we're working on uh, daily ways to improve that and, and try and get that list down. Um, we have a dashboard that has been created uh, by uh, 311 and our IT department um, with uh, Ash helping us uh, get that up and going. And, um, and then uh, in our 311 system, we are uh, significantly outpacing our incoming calls. Finally, we've gotten to that point where we're actually chipping away on that backlog that we had of uh, originally around 3,000 calls. We're down to about 1,700 calls, and we're uh, getting ahead of that. I think last week alone, we, uh, if you can see it on there, I can barely see it, but we received 200 and, um, 283 calls, and we actually closed 1,100 calls. So we made a big jump last week on getting ahead of this. Um, and I'm hoping that we uh, chip away at that and get our 311 calls down to uh, a significantly lower number that we can react a little bit quicker. Um, and then we're currently uh, recruiting for the program manager position. Uh, we recently hired an admin assistant position that was open, and then we have another admin assistant that's retiring. So now we'll start the process over. Um, these are some of the numbers that I wanted to show you of the work that we're doing. So the large encampments served uh, 764 encampments, but again, that's uh, uh, on the large encampments. If you look at all encampments, and we call them encampments uh, four-tenths or more, these larger ones are like 20-tenths or more. Um, but even if we look at smaller ones, uh, we're again back up into that four to 5,000 number. Um, and then this is on the right, our 33,000 calls for services, what we had for 311 for this past year. Um, and then there's our numbers we're looking at. Our shelter wait list is still at uh, 2,334, and then we have a family wait list of 625. And until we get more, more beds available and more um, housing and shelters that that number is, is going to sit for a little while. Um, and this is uh, DCR, and uh, this is uh, kind of a little statement that I put out there. Um, until you've been involved in this every day, I don't think that you can really appreciate the complexities of of homelessness and all the meetings all everything like I'm 24 7 consumed with this and not only the outreach side but working with trying to get housing uh, working with behavioral health working every service that we possibly have for every individual out there because there is a different need for every individual that's out there um, and so from the comfort of our own homes, it's hard to understand the complexity of something like homelessness. And I say this because I think we're starting to gain a little empathy back, but that has been lost and I'm working really hard to get some of that back. Uh, because until you walked a mile, it's, it's easy to 
to point and disregard uh, these individuals that until you get out there in the streets and actually talk to them and listen to how they got there, I think you would be much more appreciative of um, how close anybody can be and be in that position. And uh, fortunately, all my workers feel that way. And uh, everybody that uh, I work with is working hard to get these people housed. And with that, I'm open to questions. Thank you very much. It's a, Thank you very much. I mean, you and your team are really doing blessed work. Um, and the, uh, you're right there, but for the grace of God could be any of us. Um, so thank you. Thank you. And I hope you will tell your staff they're doing amazing work. Um, and in, and it's incredibly challenging. I. I need to ask you, not too long ago in a presentation the county homeless coordinator made to the Board of Supervisors, I think she said that for every person that gets off the streets, there are three who become unhoused. Yeah, I think Is we're that... narrowing that number down a little bit. So we're not, uh, um, we're, we're gonna do our, our um, point in time count, which is gonna yeah. do our, our count. Um, and we'll see where that goes. Um, it's, we'll see where we end up. But uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we're leveling out. Um, but yes, you are correct. Wow. And wow. Yes. Uh, I'm going to see if my colleagues have questions. Uh, Member Gorris. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, to all my committee members, I apologize for coming a little late, just a little traffic. Mr. Pedro, thank you for your presentation. Um, my question is, do you have any updates as far as um, the suit the, co the county has against the city of Sacramento with the homelessness issue? I know it's kind of a, not a positive situation, but can you provide any information about that as far as what the status is with the case or anything with the lawsuit? Um, I can't. Um I haven't been um, tracking it. It hasn't uh, affected what we're doing. Um, and um, in, in some regards, it's, um, I just stay focused on what our job is. And until somebody tells me to stop or, or do more, uh, I'm just focused in our lane. And, Fair enough, thank you. And can can I just clarify a bit? That is not the county suing the city. It's the DA suing the city, which is a, because yes. there's a partnership with the county and the city yes. to work on Correct. these issues. And there's a third party who's in the mix. Correct. Good point. Uh, yeah, and the city and county um, are working together every day. We're out there with the county's behavioral health uh, outreach team and, and our outreach teams. Uh, so it hasn't affected us, it's, it's outside of, of our operations. Thank you for the clarification, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, Member Macias. Thank you for your presentation. Oh, let me just get closer. Thank you for your presentation um, and for the work you and your team do. I had two questions. One was um, in your Department of Community 
Is it or neighborhood neighborhood response or uh, the neighborhood resource neighborhood resource? Yeah. I was curious about the vacancy vacancies. I think there was a team of fifteen, and then there were seven vacancies. If that um, are the, those positions being filled or that needs there? And then my my second question was just we're thinking about our own you know recommendations from the commission to the city council and just where you would see uh, what your recommendations be were for more resources within your um, the department you oversee. Yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing because we are looking at, um, like one of the individuals that um, we are, we're gonna lose is they're getting educated and they're getting their, their masters in social work and then they need their clinical hours and so they leave us to go get their clinical hours somewhere um, and, and get, because we can't provide that. Um, and so we were losing people there. Uh, we did lose an individual that injured himself uh, on the job. Um, and um, so it's, and it, it's, um, it's a tough job. It's emotionally draining job. Um, and that's one of the things that, that I'm conscious of and looking at ways that we can take care of our own people. Um, so it's always gonna be a struggle to keep positions full. Um, Hope Cooperative is, is really helping us with that contract right now. Um, I'm looking that we'll recruit for more NRCs, um, but it's also a tough position to fill. Uh, so, my, I mean, that's, yes, I would like to fill every position. Whether we can by recruiting is another question. But they are, so they are budgeted for, it just hasn't, it's just, they're hard to fill. It's, I mean, I can imagine it's. Yeah, I, I, uh, I haven't had the authorization to recruit, but they are, they're there. And then do you have ideas or recommendations for us for within the department where resources are needed or more resources are needed? Well, um, so <laughs> I come from a military background um, and uh, knowing that uh, they never give you more resources, so you figure out how to be more efficient and effective with the resources you have. Um, so uh, that's kind of what I focus on. Um, and of course, we're looking at uh, you know, budget crunches. Um, so there's only so much that you can ask for in a, in a looking towards a lean budget year. Um, I think that what we have in place right now, if we're using it effectively, is working well. Uh, the, I mean, the, 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 the thing that we need at this point is just more, um, more housing and that's outside of, of what we can control. Uh, Member Sala. Well, um, I, so I, I go, I attend the city council meetings and at the end you all give a report or, or the assistant city manager provides the report and I think he, I've seen you provide it a couple of times and the first time I heard the report, I was 
it was an eye-opener for me <clears throat> because I'm in the community. I'm, I, I live in Garneland Northgate, and typically you just hear just how slow it is in 311, and people don't respond, and that you'll call, and, and no one does anything. And, um, but when I heard your report, and you said how your, the, the impact management team is prioritizing issues, and that depending on the priority will be the response that is given, and sometimes it may take, if it's a low priority, two weeks. I thought that was very incredibly helpful. And I think we had someone come to our Gardenland Northgate Neighborhood Association meeting to share that, and wherever possible, I tried to share that information to inform the community that just because you three one you call three one one, you're not going to get a response within two days or three days. It doesn't mean that you're not working hard at addressing the issue. It's just you're prioritizing and. And there's a lot, and you're right, the homeless issue is very complex. Not to mention that we don't have sufficient housing um, for the need. But I appreciate having that report and, and all of you working through as a team in a collaborative manner. So thank you, it's great. And I think the, the more that the community can understand that, the better. The only one thing, and I think you may have addressed it, it may have been addressed before, is like when someone um, files a 311 call, they get their account number and then I wanna look at it in a week to see what's happening with it. Uh, I'm not sure that you do it now, but there's no status app update like in progress you know uh, resolution date possibly something that I would know it, it's not closed it's not resolved but 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 it's in progress and I'm not sh I know that you've heard that feedback but I don't know if if it's been resolved or not yeah, so there is a, a part of it that has been and you yeah. get a in progress when we're when we're working on it still, when it's still open. <clears throat> but that's part of that piece that I was talking about where we have uh, created responses for each category. Um, and they're, there's a, um, there's, they're kind of the general response for like a trash concern or uh, we went to that location and nobody was there, but then you can personalize it. Um, and, and we're working, we've worked on our end to make it easier for us that when we go to that location that we don't have to get there and do a whole dissertation for that location that we can do a drop down menu and go, okay, there's nobody at this location. We can click that, it'll auto feed it. And then we can just do a few keystrokes and send it. Mm -hmm. So we were working and we automated on, on our end. And then on the other side of that is that piece, exactly what you're talking about, where we're getting that worked out so they get a progress. Initially we thought, well, do we send it at how many days? Six days saying it's in progress or do we do it at 10 days or where do we do that? And then now we're looking at just making it a um, more, it, it's a more live system that they'll get an update as we change the status of it. 
I, I think that would be really helpful. And this, this Friday, because the misinformation and not understanding 311, our association is having a workshop for our community and bringing someone just how to work with, effectively with 311 and what does it mean and, and how do you follow up. So I think to the extent that that can happen in communities is gonna be very helpful. Um, and then my other comment is, a couple more comments is, I, I am surprised with the money that Measure U is giving you, how much work you, how, how effectively you're using that money to do the work that you do. So um, that was, when you broke it down in those segments, it was impressive for um, how you're utilizing the Measure U monies. I, so one of your, one of your um, campsites, you didn't, and I don't know if it's not because it's not a city campsite, is Camp Resolution, is that not part of the support that the city gives or why wasn't it listed? Yep, uh, so Camp Resolution is um, a lease of land to, to, we provided the land and we provided trailers, and then they were going to, uh, they're running it themselves. And so there is no commitment from the city to provide any services or outreach there. Uh, and that was the initial agreement that they were going to run the, the camp themselves. So there is no funding provided. And I thank you for um, educating people on 311 because that uh, is something that I'm trying to educate everyone on as well. Uh, it's unfortunate that it has a 1 1 after it because a 911, you get a response in five minutes. Um, so it presented a level of expectation. <clears throat> um, but uh, I'm trying to explain that 911 is actually a dispatch system, and 311 is a call taker system. So they simply are taking the call and then they will feed that to somebody to uh, get you a response where 911 is the actual call and dispatch. And so I'm trying to get that education out there. I appreciate anybody else that can help me get the message out. Thank you. Uh, Member Bird. I just wanted to thank you for the presentation. It was very informative. Um, will we get a PowerPoint? Um, of what you just presented, is that possible? Actually, I mean, uh, Jacob Redberg with the Office of the City Clerk. Uh, this will be uploaded to the city's uh, records after the meeting. Uh, give it a couple of days, and it'll be it'll be on there and available to the public. Okay, and I use three one one often. Good customer service. I use the app, so I'm one that I've never had any issues with three one one. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, and through and one, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, um, Member Georgioff. Hello, thank you for the presentation, and thank you for the work you guys do. It's honestly super important, um, maybe even the most important thing that this city is currently facing. Um, I do have some questions, and hopefully you can provide some answers um, and, and a few comments. Um, one is, uh, one of the things that stick out to me, and probably other individuals when they're looking at your presentation is the number of vacancies, right? So we see like um, in that one building that had a capacity of 50, we're getting like 27 or 29 um, bed nights or night beds, whatever the term for that 
um, statistic is. Why so many uh, vacancies? How, what is the reason we can't fill them? Or, um, yeah. Um, which, uh, the, is it, was it on the, one of the slides? Yeah, it was one of the slides. Um, I can try to find it. It says 27 bed nights. Uh, this is the Hope, Com uh, Hope Cooperative Outreach and Engagement Center. Um, okay, so uh, the, the activated 27 bed nights is when we activate the weather respite okay. and that expands it out. And on those, on those, we got we had 27 nights that we activated it. I see, and that's different than the activated 13 nights for other reasons. Um, so the activated 13 is uh, so far in 2024. That was oh, the 27 okay. was from 2023. Got it. Makes yeah, sense. I didn't put a year on that. Okay. So this um, is yeah. So when we activate and we expand that out to 100, um, and those are those are just nights that we've activated thus far. Perfect, I understand now. Okay, thank you for clarifying. The other question I had in one of the graphs and like I think two slides maybe after that, um, we see like number of uh, beds available and it goes from like nine to zero to 19 and that was like in the span of like a week or two weeks. Um, again, I guess I wanna ask like why the high variability here? Are we not like, is the environment not like um, stable enough or why do you think that um, we see this? Also, uh, another data point here, which is why I'm even asking a question is, yeah. um, for example, with the county um, at the Florin Road, um, Power and Florin Road Center, they're having difficulty filling um, the units. And so I'm wondering, like, what are the roadblocks here that's stopping um, these units from being filled, basically? So if we look at this slide, and I apologize because I can barely see it. Yeah, that is the slide. <laughs> So it is small, but in the bottom uh, right, it says bed availability, Roseville Red Campus, and OEC. And we go from like eight to 12 to zero to, I think it says 16 or something like that, all like within the span of a week or weeks. Okay, so that um, is because this is the week of um, January 6th, I think it was. So that was that transition when we were moving everybody from Miller Park over so we had 75 people, 76 people at Miller Park, and we were moving them over to the new Roseville site. And so that even in itself was a, uh, a little bit of logistics. How do you move 76 people from that site and their stuff to this site and then not shut that one down yet and move some of them? And so we were going back and forth. So what we did in that period is that we and said, okay, we're not taking any intakes until we can get them, and we just went with, let's get everybody over there. So there was a period where we didn't take any intakes, and so that's where you see that drop where zero intakes are going in. I understand. And then once we opened it back up, um, everybody likes our new pallet homes, and they're like, we'll take one. Gotcha. <laughs> so okay, that makes sense to me. So then filling up quickly. So you're not having issues basically finding individuals to or like to give houses to? Uh, no, and you know, that's, it's interesting because um, I think that's another little, uh, uh, I don't know, rumor, misnomer, whatever you want to call it, yep. of, of the service resistance. Um, and again, complex situations. 
service resistant because you didn't want to leave your dog because they wouldn't take your dog, well, I'd rather stay in the street with my dog than to give up my dog and go. So is that service resistance? No, maybe that's, we need to fix that, which our new site does take animals, so they're able to bring their animal with them. Um, but it's, it's, it's all over the place. It's, um, we have a place for you in South Sacramento. Well, I grew up in the streets of North. I'd rather be homeless in the streets that I know than to go all the way to the other end of town, not know anybody, not know any place, just to have a, a you know a roof over my head of some sort. Um, so it's just it's just again part of that complex trying to get people in somewhere. Um, I can tell you if we had some some housing for everybody uh, or some place to move them to that there would be a, probably 90% of them would would go. I guess one thing I'm hearing from you is like a variety in locations and regulations around those locations would be very helpful, right? Okay, um, another question that I have for you, um, and actually maybe this is more of a statement, but I've, I've heard as from uh, stat, I don't know if it's exactly right, but basically the number of responses that we get from, for example, homelessness, uh, DCR handles a large bulk of that, and those the cost of a DCR uh, um, like resolution path is like significantly cheaper and more effective than like a policeman being called out and addressing the situation. Do you have those stats on you by chance of like a cost per response metric where we can sort of like advocate for your services being significantly more effective than, for example, um, a 911 response? Uh, I don't, but I can tell you that coming from the fire department, and um, I mean, I will tell you all day long, and I, and I was in fire for 27 years, um, but uh, like I would stand in front of a fire board and argue that uh, DCR can, can do it cheaper, and that's part of the whole purpose of this, right? Police officers and, and 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 fire department are for 911 specific emergency responses, and these are outside of that realm and outside of that training. And uh, yes, we can definitely do it cheaper. Uh, I can pull some numbers to give you an idea because it's a pretty. On on one hand, it'd be pretty straightforward if you just looked at, hey, uh, X number of calls. This is what it costs for a 911 response. This is what it would cost for us to respond. Um, I mean, that would be a pretty easy, straightforward figure to come up with. Um, and that in and of itself, if you wanted to make it that simple, uh, would certainly show you the, the difference. Yeah, and that doesn't even include, like, further looking down the line, booking them into a jail, and then that whole process, the cost there, the time there, the, the disruption to the individual, significant. Right, um, and that's one of the things we look at, time on task, yep. um, is, is big dollars, uh, right. let alone pulling a, a, a fire engine out of a emergency response or police department out of an emergency response. So is the, do you feel that there's a currently sufficient diversion in if you if the city receives basically a 911 call, are you getting those uh, like in a, in a fluid way? Or, is, or do you feel like there's a lot of friction in that um, process right now? And should yeah, it be better? Uh, Really, really good question because there is still no system that ties in the 911 CAD system to bring those calls over to us. Um, and we've talked about this for forever. 
uh, even uh, you know, again when I was on the fire side of trying to get that together. There's still work being done, and and there is no pushback from um, from the fire department saying, yeah, you can you can have those calls. Uh, gladly, we will give you all those calls, but uh, we still haven't bridged that gap of how to get those over. <clears throat> but we're we're getting much closer. I can tell you that. Is there any funding that needs to happen on that side, or like what are the resistances of making that possible? I think it's in the 911 realm of getting um, it's just getting it, again, it's it's all of these systems are um, it's communication with the systems themselves. Uh, they're all proprietary systems that everybody came up with when they were running their program and they were running their program and none of them talked to each other. Um, so it's just getting a system that can tie them together. Um, and that's really all it is. There is no resistance from anything other than getting the system to work. Great, yeah. Um, okay, I would definitely would like to follow up with you at some point on that specifically. Um, one thing I just wanted to ask, last question I promise, I know I'm taking a lot of time, um, was you said you weren't permitted to recruit. Um, what did you mean by that? We don't have a recruitment open, actively opened right now. Okay, I see. But you have the head count, but you can't you can't recruit for them, is what you're saying. And and I think we're probably looking at pause right now because we need to figure out what our budget year is going to look like. And so, um, I mean, this hasn't this hasn't been said to me or spoken to me, but uh, um, at least looking at. I don't want to hire somebody that that I would have to unhire. Um, so I'm, I, I mean, I'm personally um, looking at how do we how do we weigh that? We have um, hope to get us through, and then we need to figure out where we're going to be on this next budget year to determine getting all of those positions. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, and for all you do and your team, uh, we, I really appreciate it for sure. Uh, Member Diaz. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you. There you go. Thank you for joining us tonight for answering our questions. Uh, you know, we're tasked with just ensuring that the dollars under measure you are well spent. It sounds like in this case they very much are well spent on an enormous priority issue for uh, the city of Sacramento. Can I ask you, in the materials, we have a note here that, um, you know, $7.9 million of your budget come directly from Measure U. Is that correct? Uh, seven nine? Uh, 17 point nine million. Oh, 17 point nine, yes. Um, so I appreciate your note about trying to be most efficient with that as we're facing lean budget years. I think it's gonna be important to make the most of what we have. But, you know, at the same time, we have the point in time count coming up later this week and we have a, a little over 9,000 folks who are homeless in Sacramento County. And I really hope that our count this week doesn't display a huge increase in that and hopefully we'll level off and are working our way towards reducing that number. Uh, additionally, tonight we're gonna be talking about affordable housing a little bit later today. And our total Measure U budget uh, over the last cycle, I know it's a little bit smaller this year, was $143 million in total. And if we're expending a decent chunk of that, an important 10%, a little over that, uh, on our Department of Community Response and our homelessness response. I think that's an enormously well-spent amount. But what really solves homelessness is housing. And from the Measure U budget, we're spending about $3 million on affordable housing, which is 
a really low percentage, and I think a very disappointing fraction of those dollars spent on a really important cause. And really, the, the solution to homelessness is putting a roof over somebody's head. And I find the discrepancy really worrying. Um, now, you know, we can spend more of it. If we spent the entire Measure U budget on affordable housing, which I know we will not do, we still wouldn't necessarily make the big dent that we'd like. However, every $1 spent locally can draw down up to $5 at the state and federal level. So I do think there's an important piece and discussion here about how we expend the Measure U dollars. There was a lot of promises made to the voters and the residents of Sacramento on how that money would be spent. And so I would encourage us as a committee in our discussion of this to consider how we can really pressure the city council and the public to expend more dollars on the affordable housing side and really try and even that out a little bit more because spending you know, close to 20 million on homelessness response is critical and enormously important, but spending only 3 million of 143 on affordable housing I think is a number that is far too low. So I just wanna thank you for all the work you're doing. I think you'll find a lot of alignment of my colleagues and I here in trying to ensure that you have somewhere to turn to when you have someone in need, that they have a, hopefully some supportive housing unit that you can refer them to in the future. I know we need a lot more of that. And uh, I know as we'll be talking about our budget priorities and our affordable housing priorities, uh, I stand prepared to really talk heavily about how important it is that we spend more of our Measure U dollars on affordable housing because otherwise we're really swimming upstream and aren't going to make the kind of dent that we'd like to see. And I really hope that our numbers later this week show that we have made progress, but if not, I think we know one area where we can do a little bit of our part as a committee to address the homelessness problem really at the root. So thank you, and I just want to make sure to put that on the record. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, Member Pascal. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation and for your service um, in several different ways. Um, I really um, <clears throat> appreciate what you said about empathy. And I see a lot, whether it's on the news or in my next door app, which I don't recommend anyone read because it's like very hateful. Um, there's not I, the balance of, of empathy to hatefulness is, is pretty rough. Um, and I was thinking about just in terms of the, the numbers you presented about like measuring trash and measuring needles. And I wonder like if you measured something else, if you measured blankets or you measured diapers or something, like why, why the needles? It seems a little stigmatizing. Um, that's a good question. That wasn't my decision. Um, and I'm, uh, the, you know, there, there's uh, a company that goes out and gives clean needles out there. So there are well, needles being given out. So of course we're gonna have a high return on those. But if we're lucky, we have a high return on all those needles and you get some clean ones. Um, so um, I don't know, I've, I've kind of um, looked at that back and forth and um, I agree with you. I, I'm not sure that that's a, a significant um, metric to track. Um, we, uh, there's so many other things that we look at that like has nothing even to do with our incident management team, more of the, um, service side of it. And, and that's what all the other things that we look at and track is like, what, what do the people need to get off the street? Is it, you know, what service is it than that? And then like for outreach, we're looking again at our outreach, like what are the questions or what do we need to say to you to get you to accept services? Um, and I, I mean, we're looking at this from every 
every angle. Um, and this is just a, a tip of just showing the, what the incident management team is doing out there. Um, I mean, I, I want to add some of the more humanistic side of this to show um, actual individuals that we're pulling off of the streets and getting them placed um, and uh, maybe give a little bit of their story of how they, you know, got there and, and where we're getting them uh, because we do have some success stories out there and we never get a chance to get that side out because everybody's too busy beating on us to get the homeless off the street. Um, and so it's, uh, I'm gonna try and turn that narrative a little bit and then actually give you, hey, let's, let's talk about the good stories. <laughs> let's not hear about what they stole or, or they're trashing whatever. Um, let's talk about the people that we did get off the streets and, and where we got them and where they're going. Um, there's some good success success stories out there that we need to focus on. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Um, I have a comment and a couple of questions. First, our comment, um, I really want you to know that as we prioritized where Measure U funding should go in, um, in our in preparing to make recommendations to the council, uh, three out of the top four priorities were homelessness, affordable housing, and community response. And to Member Diaz's comments, I, I suspect that we're going to double down on those priorities as we make recommendations for 24-25, even recognizing the, the serious challenges, uh, budget challenges the city um, faces. But uh, we... we those are the issues we thought were the top priorities for Measure U investments, and um, as, as I expect, we will double down. And sort of to that point, I noticed that you have a really significant um, amount of funding from ARPA and HHH, I lost out how many H's are in funds, and are those, uh, in, in either or both cases, one-time funds that are going away? Are they just, that's a lot of money in addition to the Measure U funding. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Yin and I talk about this all the time. Um, it's, it's a, and it's, it's difficult because we've, we're, we're at HAP5. Um, we just got the report out that they're going to be a release of HAP5 funding and we're putting in to receive those funds uh, working long trying to get that to uh, success to get the application in um but that we like we live on this year by year are we going to have funding next year and looking at what if we don't have the funding for next year uh it will be significant to a lot of our programs and that's that's the other side of what makes makes it look like we're stretching these funds we have a lot of other funds that are being put into our shelters and, and uh, you know, taking care of other motel programs. Um, and that's a big chunk of that money. And that's, if we lose that funding, then we're gonna have to figure out how we're going to uh, start peeling that back and um, prioritizing. Um, are are those are. funds at risk? Pardon? Are those the non-city funds, the non-Measure U funds, are those at risk? Um, We'd have to ask um, the governor if he has funding <laughs> for for next year. Um, we 
there is, um, we're just finishing the, you know, HAP 5 just came out as far as what's available. My guess is that was earmarked before this. Um, so I don't know what, what it's going to look like. I mean, uh, Yayin, do you have anything to suggest that we're going to get funding after HAP 5? Yeah, they're certainly not going to cut us off and and everybody figure it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but we are certainly already looking at where where we're going to go with this and how can again going back to how can we um, make it leaner, look at our processes. How can we be more effective and efficient with? Can we st stack more people together? Can we uh, and then we're also looking at performance of our programs, like who's the high performers. And if we have to start cutting funding, then the people that are getting the positive exit rates and getting people to successes are the people that we're going to support. And the people that uh, aren't doing that well are going to be the ones that we're going to have to uh, cut loose. And then on to the um, Roseville Road and Miller Park. And I live close to Resolution uh, Village and relatively close to Roseville Road, and we have great needs, as you know, out in that, that area. But, and, and maybe, I, maybe I just couldn't read the um, charts enough, but it looked like, I, it, did we net more spaces with the opening of Roseville and the closing of Miller Park? Yes, yes. Um, so Miller Park was um, full when we uh, moved everybody. Um, so like I said, we were 76. Um, we moved all of them. Uh, we thought we were only moving 75, but we found 76 because they decided to come back. Um, so we moved 76. That <coughs> Roseville Road site, if we fill, so the pallet homes will hold two individual per pallet home. And we have um, 12 more coming in. So we have 48 um, and we'll have a total of 60. So that's 120 beds. And then we have trailers. We have, uh, we'll have a total of 40 trailers and um, you can fit three individuals in each trailer. So that gives us another 120. So there's 240 total, but I will tell you that with that being said, it's very triaged very carefully to try and get two or three individuals to be able to cohabitate together. And so best case scenario, we can get 240 in there. Um, it's just going to be dependent on if we're pulling a group that was living together on the streets and they're willing to live together, then we'll put you in a trailer if, uh, you know, if there's a, a family unit that we can bring in, we'll put them in a trailer. And then it's, it's uh, we're doing a little uh, experimentation on trying to get two individuals together in a unit and we're trying it in a, in a kind of a pilot study of smaller, because uh, there's concerns that, that they're not gonna get along. I have a real quick question on 311. 
do you get all the 311 calls? Like when my garbage can is broken and I contact 311, do you guys have to triage that with this, this real problem? <clears throat> so uh, we have uh, more blessed people than you could ever imagine working 311 and taking all those calls. Um, their staffing there is thin and they take all of those calls. Um, most of them are, are homelessness calls, but yes. So homeless call, I need my trash. Homeless call, I need. <laughs> so yes, they take all through on one calls. <laughs> Good luck with that. Great department. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, Member Macias. Yeah, sorry, I had a, a couple more questions about this last slide and related to 311. When it says you're outpacing the 311 call, calls, does that mean um, like there's no backlog, like you're getting to them before, I mean, at a rate above uh, that you're getting them? So like what is your average response time? So we're ticking that down. So when I, when, when I got in there uh, before we stood up the incident management team to really try and organize this thing and start chipping away at the calls, um, we were backlogged over 3,000, and uh, this today, when I looked, it was just under 1,700, and we're, we're knock on wood. Um, so let me back up a little bit. When, we first, when I first got in here, our daily calls were about 120 calls a day. And then we told everybody to call 311, and so everybody started calling 311. And so our calls went up to, they, they actually jumped up to about 180 calls a day, and they went back down to about 160 calls a day. <clears throat> so we're finally out of many iterations of, of this incident management team response. We're in the last month, we've really been on track where we're outpacing the calls that are coming in. So we're able like 250 calls come in and we're able to close 700 um, there's still more calls coming in behind that but we're you know 500 ahead and then we the the downside is we lose a little ground on the weekends because we're not running 24 7 right now um, we will do a little overtime if needed on the weekends um, but we lose a little ground on the weekend and then come monday it starts all over again but um, that backlog of 3,000 is now just under 1700 and if we keep going at the pace we're going, um, I'm hoping if we keep this rate that uh, within the next month and a half, we'll be much closer to, um, we're, we're, we're never gonna be live because the volume of calls that come in, and this is something that I'm trying to clean up and we're working with 311 actually to see if there's a way that we can screen this is that you'll get uh, 50 calls for the same location. But we have to respond or do some kind of response to every one of those calls. And so we'll go to that area and you would like to just like click, they're all the same calls and close them. But then if you called, you don't get a response. If you called, you don't get a response if we just did it that way. So we have to close every single call that nobody here or same in Cameron provided service, whatever it is. 
Um, so we're always going to be chasing a little bit until we can get the system smart enough to take all those calls and go, okay, these are all the calls for the same area. Got it. So do you have a sense of what average response time is and, what, and also what your goal is? Yeah, so we've talked about this. So, um, I mean, I would like to see the response times down to like two to three days. Um, the, the problem with it is we have, with the incident management team, we're, we're running, oh, so we had to prioritize the calls, right? So we're looking at critical infrastructure, 500 feet from schools, sidewalk violations. Um, so those are like our priority calls. And, and then we have, uh, you know, public safety concern that somebody needs to be moved because they're in a dangerous area. And so we're prioritizing calls as, as well as getting the general calls that come in that somebody calls in and says, hey, there's an encampment in my front yard. They're just living there. There's not really anything wrong with that call. So that call obviously is gonna, like I can't give you a day because this call might be 30 days away. And if it's a priority critical infrastructure call, it's a day away. And so that's why it's been hard to put a number on, uh, like what's your response time? And when we first brought this up, um, I would say to my mistake uh, that it was about a 16 day response to priority calls but that message was 16 days response time, period. Um, and so that's why it's like, gosh, it's tough to put a, a day on it because it depends on what your call was. If it's a low priority, it's not gonna be, it's gonna be out of low ways. Encampment from Miller Park to um, Roseville Boulevard or Roseville mm -hmm. Street because mm -hmm. of rooms, more space. Do, are you also in control over the one on East Parkway? The they're little, they look like little homes. The counties. Oh, that you. That's not part of your team. No. I'm just curious, what is involved in an in an encampment? What like you said, there's like three people to one trailer. Are there do they have beds and shower and kitchen and so all of those things are included? Yeah. So the, the and that's the, the the new site that we got on Roseville Road. That's kind of the whole like excited to have that place. Um, it was the old uh, Air National Guard uh, base there, and so it had um, plumbing on it. They had their showers and bathrooms, um, and then it was um, it has uh, power on it. Um, we don't have it to every unit yet, but we're looking at getting all the units powered up. But there was a lot of infrastructure that was there that Miller Park didn't have. Like we had portable bathrooms uh, and portable showers there, but this one has plumbed in showers and bathrooms along with adding, we have portables there as well, just so you don't have to walk from the back all the way if you don't wanna make that walk. Um, you have a bathroom close by, <clears throat> but the new site has a room that we're looking at putting, uh, allows us to expand services and get, there's offices there that we can get the services at the site. Um, and that's my dream world that uh, I hope we can get to fruition is to get all of our services there and have it more of like a one-stop location where we can provide that outreach and casework 
and get them signed up and uh, all the paperwork that's needed to get you in to get a voucher, to get an apartment. It's a big process. It takes a lot of steps. Um, more of the complex issues of this is like, yeah, sure, I want an apartment, but I don't have an ID. Oh, okay, well, we got to get you an ID. Well, we got to get you your birth certificate so we can get you an ID so then we can get you the paperwork so we can prove who you are and then we got to get this paper and that paper. It's like a, <laughs> it's like going to any bureaucratic industry and getting all the paperwork here. You need to fill this out and then you can get a voucher to come into our, to get you a voucher to go get a rental. Um, so I want to try and get all of those people in one spot and we can get people lined up and ready to go in one location along with providing the casework and the counseling that's needed. And that's the beauty of this new location is we have the office space there that we can, staff can comfortably be there uh, where uh, Miller Park is temporary location with no real office space there and just uh, temporary facilities. So the trailers that you have now, they're sort of like little apartments for people. Yeah, they're they're like camping trailers. Okay. Um, and they have uh, three sleeping beds in them. Um, and and they and the people that live on the facility, they manage it as well. Did you say? Or? Yeah. So that's um, uh, First Step Community. Is their their operator that runs that facility, and they're there twenty four seven. So they have the teams there that provide all the services and outreach and then they have uh, and then we have the security uh, there that is around the perimeter make sure that nobody's coming in that shouldn't come in and um, people aren't uh, leaving in the middle of the night thank you I was I was just kind of curious of the details and how what and you know what's in an encampment so thank you Hi, I uh, just wanted to follow up on one of the things that you mentioned earlier. Actually, Member Sala brought it up about an encampment that you didn't have in your slide, but it's because it was self-governed, right? Um, have you seen success in these sort of, um, I guess, encampments that are self-governed where, like, basically the only cost to us is, like, a piece of land that's not being utilized? And I know it's complicated because it has to be a certain distance away from a school, critical infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, in terms of, like, skin off the city's back, it's, like, none. Um, have you followed up with these self-governed encampments? Are they successful? Like, is there a minimum amount of services that we could provide that are maybe very cheap for us, but like super impactful for them? Um, yeah, what's your take? Um, from what I've seen so far, um, it ends up being just a place to camp without really any forward progress. Okay. Um, and I mean, if, if, you're, if you're not being provided some opportunity to, to uh, see an improvement, then you're just gonna, you're gonna camp. So there's not like a, a good path out of homelessness in, in these situations so far that, that you've seen? That's my opinion. I'm sure that you're gonna hear other opinions about, uh, about the non-governed, uh, Camps. Thank you. Thank you, and I do want to honor Mr. Pedro's uh, time as he's already, I think, was into his uh, 12 plus hours uh, for today. 
Um, so uh, anything absolutely essential for him or um, can we move move forward? Thank you and thank him. Thank you all. So, I, I appreciate, so I appreciate the, the support. And Chair, before we <clears throat> officially move on, I can confirm we have uh, no speaker slips on this item thank from the you. public. Thank you for catching that. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Thank, and thanks for the work you do. And Any further discussion on this topic? We'll have an opportunity as we develop our budget priorities to really focus focus on this um, even more than last year. <clears throat> Appreciate all your questions and comments. Um, so we will now proceed to item four, which is selection of chair and vice chair for calendar year 24. Thank you, Chair. My name is Jacob Redberg with the Office of the City Clerk. Uh, no staff presentation this evening, but um, I did want to remind, or actually, sorry, all information is in within your staff report uh, provided to you uh, along with the agenda. Um, and I wanted to remind the members of a few things. Uh, members may nominate another member or themselves as chair or vice chair. Uh, typically, nominations will be heard for chair first and then vice chair. Um, a member may serve as chairperson or vice chairperson for no more than two calendar years. Uh, so with the current roster, all members are eligible to serve as chair as well as vice chair. Um, and the newly elected chairperson and vice chairperson will start their terms at the next regular meeting. Um, and I'm available for any questions. Thank you. I appreciate that. Any volunteers? Any nominations? Any discussion? Oh, oh I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I've got a speaker's cue. Um, Member Sala. I would like to nominate um, Chair Dickinson to, for another year as chair. Is there a second? Moved and seconded. Excellent. So I have a uh, nomination by member Sala um, nominating uh, current chair uh, Dickinson to a second term as chair uh, with a second by member Wolf. I will now do the roll call vote. If Is there any discussion? Oh, my apologies. <laughs> I appreciate the nomination and should the vote be that way, I will be happy to serve. To recognizing this is my last um, year on the committee, so I will be gone, and I do think it's important for us to think about succession planning as we finish this discussion tonight. So thank you. Thank you, Chair. Members, if you could please unmute your microphones. Member Rueb? Yes. Member Sala? Yes. Member Masias? Yes, and thank you for doing this. Member Wolf? Yes. Member Gorris? Yes. Member Georgeoff? Of course. Member Bird? Yes. Member Pascal? Yes. Member Diaz? Yes. And Chair Dickinson? Yes, thank you. Thank you. The motion passes. And um, I just want to, I, 
I just want to say thank you for doing this. And this past year, in a, in a time that there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty, you've, you've done a wonderful job of spearheading these issues and testifying in front of um, city council and the various committees. And so thank you. Really appreciate it. You've been just an outstanding leader. Well, thanks for the kind words and thanks to all of you for the vote of confidence. Um, and I'm serious about, we really do, I, I, I think I bring some continuity and some background, but I think it's really, I'm, I'm the last, last woman standing from the original committee, and I, I think it's really important to take advantage of that continuity, but really think about all the wise, smart, committed minds that are on this committee and how how we organize to take advantage of both what I bring, but what each of you bring um, to this, and where you're going to take it to the future. That's that's most important. So, is do I hear a um, nomination or a volunteer for vice chair? Uh, Member Sala. So I, I, I just want to reiterate the importance of really looking at succession planning. So so those of you that are new, this is an opportunity to be vice chair with the hopes that then you'll move into chair position and um, et cetera, et cetera. So as we're thinking about who to nominate, think about that. Who do we want in a year to be the chair for the committee? Thank you. That's that's very correct. Uh, Member Wolf. Yeah. Um, I guess we just have a discussion first. Is, is there anyone who thinks they won't be here in a year? I think that's a fair Other question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well. Yeah. Oh no. no. <laughs> Well, I don't know about not being here, but I just said my current job is pretty hectic, so I, I would take myself out of the running for vice chair, and I think there's a lot of great folks here that I'd be happy. I don't want to nominate on your behalf, but I know there's some great folks here I'd love to see in that role, and I think would be a great asset. Um, I mean, yes, I guess to get the ball rolling, I'm, I'd be happy to nominate um, Member Gores. Thank you for uh, the nomination. I have to kindly decline. Uh, my schedule is really, really hectic. Um, and just today as an example, the day I came in late, <laughs> I mean, you know, in the running for vice chair, um, I will have to decline. But thank you for the, for the confidence. For Georgioff. I actually want to nominate member Sala. Um, I think if you're willing, <laughs> I see that you're maybe not. But I think your participation and your mind for this is actually pretty good. Um, so I'd like to see you as vice chair. Well, thank you for that. I was actually going to nominate you. <laughs> <laughs> so I and, I and I say that, and I really appreciate that. And I, I say that because um, you're new, but... I like your energy, your thoughtfulness, and I think you would be a, a real value, not only as vice chair, but as, and hopefully 
as chair, and that would be the continuity that is so needed. So I'm I'm done in the end of 2026. That's my term is up. So that's that's why I was thinking of you. Um, I actually was thinking of Abraham, but when he made that clarification, then I thought of you. So well, I appreciate the. Uh voice of confidence um i am not i'm not sure what my schedule is going to look like in a year i'm having a kid in like a month so it's going to be a little <laughs> bit more hectic i don't know we'll see okay. but uh okay. so. so you know i'm not i'm not a po you know I've, I've been working with marge for the last few years so i'm not opposed to that it's just is is that succession planning and getting however that um if I choose not to move into chair, that somebody else do that because I'm just concerned that, and then I'll move in, and then in a year I'm out. So that's my only concern. I, I I do have a thought, which is we have a subcommittee who has a chair, so we've got another leadership spot, and so that we have more than we have more than one person who can. Oh. Step into. Oh, that's true. Leadership. Very true. So, I, I don't. I don't want to impose on Member Pascal more than we already have, or more than you guys already did on the subcommittee by making her chair. I know. I, I, I took her by surprise. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to point out that she is chairing the subcommittee, and that 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 is a, another leadership role that we we have and could be part of our succession team. Oh, um, Member Pascal. Well, I was going to um, second that. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you've made a good point that there may be several paths. So I think someone with her deep experience, particularly in participatory budgeting, um, which we hope will continue would really be an asset to us. So am I hearing a, a motion and a second for Member Sala? I'll make the motion for Member Sala if she's willing. Mm -hmm. I hear a second. Yes, I believe the motion was from um, uh, member Georgeoff with a second from member uh, Pascal. Okay. Can the clerk call the roll? Yes. Members, if you could please unmute your microphones. Uh, member Rueb? Yes. Member Sala? Yes. Member Masias? Yes. Member Wolf? Yes. Member Goris? Yes. Member Georgeoff? Yes. Member Bird? Yes. Member Pascal? Yes. Member Diaz? Yes. And Chair Dickinson? Yes. Thank you. The motion passes. wishing to speak and was that for the I, I was actually going to um, suggest to member Sala if she did take the position which she did I would help and help re recruiting the, the fresh blood for, for the next um, succession so um, yeah but you accept it so thank you but I will step up and say I, I'll help and uh, recruit and mentor those that will take over the leadership in, in a year 
Thank you. So we, we have our, our leadership, and as I mentioned, um, uh, the subcommittee met for the first time uh, before this meeting, and members Solom, Masias, Pascal, Bird were all, and Wolf, you were not present, we're all present, and and Member Pascal has agreed to chair that subcommittee, and Member Wolf is taking the lead on the first draft. If I, I'm, I'm sorry, Macias <laughs> is taking the lead on the first draft of our budget recommendations. And there are, in fact, um, a couple of available spots on the subcommittee for those who might be interested and available. Um, so let me know. And before we move on, I neglected to call a public comment. We did have one member of the public who wishes to speak uh, this evening, uh, Mr. Lambert Davis. I don't think you could have selected two more uh, inspirational people to fill those posts because I've had tremendous encounters with both of them. And uh, I, I actually stayed over, and I'm glad I did because I got to see those two people put in those posts. Um, I did want to say that I stayed over as well to thank uh, Chairperson Dickinson, because uh, my family was here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we had just gotten back from Los Angeles. Our cheesecakes went viral in LA, uh, Sacramento, and the Bay Area. And we're getting ready to flood this entire state with our mother's cheesecakes. And when I came back to the meeting, the first meeting is city council. I have a tremendous following in this city of millennials. I'm a baby boomer, so I understand the millennials. And they uh, in, encouraged me to come to that meeting. And at that meeting, Chairperson Dickinson did something that took a lot of courage. She spoke up on my situation regarding my encounters with City Hall. And that took tremendous courage because it takes tremendous courage to do what I do. So I can recognize it when I see it. And I wanted to say that it's an honor to deal with someone like Chairperson Dickerson and Vice uh, Chair Solomon because it, it takes a lot to have integrity and that's exactly what they exemplify. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no other members of the public uh, wishing to speak on this item. Thank you. And item five, our last discussion item, is a discussion of Measure U expenditures related to affordable housing and homelessness. We covered a lot of that in our uh, discussion with uh, Mr. Pedro and the Department of Community Response, but um, let's have at it. 
to the extent that. Um, I just wanted to quickly point out, we have Ya Yin from our Office of Innovation and Economic Development, who is the city's housing policy manager and available to answer any questions related to affordable housing. Uh, recognizing the presentation, presentation from the Department of Community Response was largely, largely focused on the topic of homelessness. Thank you, thanks for being here, appreciate it. Uh, any questions? I've, I've got one question. Um, Thank you for having me tonight. It's nice to meet you all. Thanks for being here, and I, I want to reiterate um, what I mentioned earlier that affordable housing and was one of our top priorities for investment of Measure U funds. Um, and my question is, um, how many affordable housing units are in the pipeline, and how does that relate, if you know, to the number of people who need housing? So in terms of the Measure U commitment to the affordable housing projects that have been made, um, I'm happy to provide an update on where we are with um, many of those projects. Um, we have several projects that um, received Measure U funding, um, one of them being the Kind South project. And that project, we are currently um, still in negotiations with the developer. And uh, that project would bring online 216 units. Um, they are possibly looking at phasing that, um, but that is ongoing and still a project that's moving forward. Um, the other projects that have been funded with Measure U include um, Step Up on Fruit Ridge, and that was a project where the city purchased the property on behalf of the developer um, for the development of affordable housing. Um, that one is looking at bringing online 100 units. Um, the developer is currently still pulling together the financing for the rest of that project, um, but we are in weekly conversations with the developer and continuing to help push that project forward um, towards completion. Um, the other projects that um, have been funded with Measure U funds include the Eden Housing Project at Donner Field, and that project would yield um, 67 units. That project is underway. Um, they are also working, co working closely with um, SHRA on pulling together the financing uh, for the rest of that project. And we should hopefully see that project come online towards, um, in terms of bringing together their financing and beginning their entitlement process towards the uh, later part of this year. And then lastly, the um, last project that's been funded with Measure U funds is a um, housing development at 13th and C Streets. And we are currently um, working on finishing up the loan documents for that particular project and anticipate bringing that to council in um, the next couple of weeks to um, get that project underway. And that project would um, bring online um, an additional 62 units. So, um, you know, and then outside of Measure U, we've also committed other housing money towards um, projects, including the HAP money, that housing homelessness funding. We have two projects there that are progressing very quickly. Um, one of them is the roadway in motel conversion that also received Project Home Key funds on. Um, they are on a very aggressive timeline due to the Home Key requirements. Um, that project would bring online uh, 70 new um, permanent supportive housing units. It's a conversion of a motel on Howe Avenue. Um, we anticipate that uh, people will be moving into that project 
um, by the end of the year. So because of the timing and the requirements of HomeKey, that is on a very uh, fast track process. Um, another large project that is going to be coming online um, and beginning construction this summer is the bridge housing project. Um, and that one, uh, we provided HAP money as well as city general fund monies. Um, that's gonna bring online 124 units on Arden Way. Um, and it includes 31 units of homeless housing. And they have um, been awarded Affordable Housing and Sustainable Communities grant from the state. They've also just been recently awarded tax credits. So they are in for their building permits. And as soon as they get through that process and close on all the financing, they hope to break ground in June. Um, and so um, as soon as construction is completed, we'll have um, more of that housing online. Um, there's also a couple of other uh, projects where we've committed city general fund. We have a partnership project with CADA um, for a project at 805 R Street. Um, and there's also a project where the city invested a significant amount of money for Stockton Boulevard, um, the gateway project at Stockton and 9th and 10th on the east and west sides um, of the property. And so um, with all of those projects, come to fruition, we're looking at 1,111 additional units um, brought online to the city. So, But those are all, like I said, in various stages of um, financing and planning and building permit processes. But those are um, pretty much what we have in the pipeline. Thank you. I see I've got some, I thought I had some, never burned. So all of these units, are they all um, apartments or are some of these for purchasing or do they, because I know there was something for that was mentioned at one of the city council meetings and I guess it was, I think it was called the missing middle and I was under the impression that some of the monies would go towards helping people purchase homes as well. Are this so, in any of these? All of these projects that I mentioned are rental projects, affordable um, housing projects, including um, permanent supportive housing projects for people experiencing homelessness. So it would be apartments? Mm -hmm. apartment most of them, complexes. most of them, yes, apartment style. I mean, some of them are, you know, structured differently. Not, not, of them, not all of them are designed to be one large, giant apartment building. I believe the step up on Fruit Ridge um, design, they're envisioning, um, you know, smaller kind of complexes to create more of a uh, community environment. Um, but uh, yeah, all, none of these are for sale. Okay. Um, member Macias. My question was, in the memo we got, it showed that for the 23-24 budget, there was uh, 3.2 million in Measure U funds for affordable housing. And then the, dis, you know, the description, it looked like it was mainly for staff to do planning and zoning and things like that. And then you just named, I don't know, five or six projects, I think, that had been funded with Measure U in the past. So is this, a, was twenty three twenty four was it a much lower number in terms of affordable housing dollars from Measure U than in past budget cycles? I don't, Michael, do you know the answer to that? Yeah. Okay. Hi there, Michael Jasso, Assistant City Manager, <coughs> as well as the Director of the Office of Innovation and Economic Development, where Yayin sits as our Housing Policy Manager. Um, we have very limited housing staff within the city. Most of our work um, 
is done in cooperation with various other agencies, such as SHRA, uh, which is very much part of the city and uh, very much our housing department, per se, uh, as well as um, uh, in our planning uh, staff. One of the things we've been doing is trying a big focus of our work in terms of afford, uh, supporting affordable housing has been how do we lower the cost of production of housing? from city permitting, streamlining, variety of other things. The city had launched a very successful um, zero impact fee program for affordable housing projects. It was the first city in the state, major city in the state, to undertake that effort. That was part of why Sacramento was also the first city in the state to receive its pro-housing designation. Um, we get a lot of external funding. We receive uh, pro-housing funding grants uh, for the program. Those earlier dollars were dollars that were made available in prior year budgets for uh, um, beginning to catalyze an affordable housing fund. This is before realizing kind of a bit of the budget uh, shortfalls we were going to be seeing in the future and went into that. So most of our funding went into those things in this year's budget that are permanent and ongoing of staff that are involved in the production of housing, particularly on the planning side um, and the production side. Um, moving forward. We're still heavily reliant on um, external funding sources such as um, HAP, such as pro-housing funding, um, other resources. As may, many of you are familiar, there was earlier discussion um, at the latter part of next year by the budget of, uh, by uh, the, the mayor of potentially pursuing a housing transportation um, kind of uh, sales tax measure which would put, produce a dedicated stream, unlike Measure U, this would not be a general tax measure. Um, for obvious reasons, um, that has been put off uh, uh, for now, um, simply because we don't believe the time is right, and I believe the elected officials didn't believe the time is right to do that. So external funding is critical for us in terms of the production of housing. That even said, like uh, as I started, we're focused on the things we can do to lower the barriers for housing. And it's, it's, it's proven to be very successful particularly our zero impact fees, which was not funded by Measure U, but general fund dollars um, directly um, moving forward. So. So, but so is that right then? So in previous years? Those were, those were they were not ongoing Measure U expenditures. They were one time. So. Got it. But they were for acquisition of, of those properties? Not necessarily acquisition of properties. Uh, they're basically gaps of financing into projects. So um, the portions of those budgets, uh, typically those budgets are much larger than simply the city's contribution, uh, whether that's through tax credits, other funding mechanisms. Um, one of the things we've also been working with is a number of developers that are producing affordable housing without any dollars from the city um, using kind of bond dollars and basically um, they would be deed restricted, but they're not deed restricted for as long as tax credit projects uh, would be for, which is typically 55 years, though many of these projects are for 30 years. But we are firmly of the belief that the city thoroughly needs the production of all levels of housing, uh, but especially affordable housing, which is where we put mo most of our efforts into. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Um, Member Diaz. Yeah, of course, thank you. Um, I want to start just noting as we're talking about affordable housing, we're actually quite lucky here in Sacramento. Sacramento is the first pro-housing city designated across the state. So I know that our city staff uh, work really hard on that to ensure that we can be accessible and as friendly to the construction of affordable housing as possible. Uh, and highly respect the work of the staff, of the builders, of uh, our partners in the community like Bridge Housing and EH Housing and Mercy Housing as well. 
Uh, at the same time, building these projects is really expensive. Uh, sometimes it can cost up to $600,000 a unit, depending on the project. Uh, but that's money well spent. You know, that's not just a unit that's going to house one family. It's going to hopefully house several families over decades uh, at a time. And so as we talk about that, you know, it's really important that we work to try to make these projects pencil. And I appreciate everything that's been mentioned here by the assistant city manager uh, on, the, uh, on the fee side and on the streamline of the process. There's also been a lot of work at the state level, work that I've been lucky to be a part of to streamline the permitting of these projects. Uh, both, I work specifically on streamlining the production of affordable housing on land owned by faith institutions, of which we have many across Sacramento who maybe are willing to host or donate land to s speed up the production of affordable housing there. We also want these dollars to stretch further. Uh, and of course, trying to find efficiencies, especially during lead budget years, is going to be really important. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, we're spending about six times more of the Measure U dollars on homelessness than we do on housing. And I think we can do better than that. I think we can be more ambitious than that with this particular set of funding that we get year after year. I know other things have been put aside, but we know we have this. And I think, you know, the city deserves a little bit better. I think we can do more there. And I know, you know, uh, even just doubling the $3 million is something else. I know that's for staffing, but trying to use that to pull down state and federal dollars, I think, is really important. So just, I know we mentioned that in our budget, and I'll just reiterate it here since this is the appropriate venue to talk about affordable housing. I think we can spend a lot more of our measure U dollars on that purpose over other purposes. I know those are really tough choices, and a lot of us on this side of the dais are brought here to talk about specific issues. Uh, but that's one that I feel really passionately about, and I'm glad we're having this conversation on the committee. And appreciate all the work that you do and just know that we stand here as partners really to help try and get that done. So every dollar, every cent, every little bit streamlining we can find, I think leads to a really important result to address our housing and homelessness needs. So just thank you and uh, glad that we're having this conversation. Thank you. Uh, Member Wolf. Um, hello, thank you for being here again. Um, I had a question regarding like, all the, are all the units deemed affordable units or are there market rate units mixed in in the ratio there somewhere? So um, I don't know if Aine can speak to the Do we have totals? They vary. The, the, ones that I, um, the ones that I mentioned are affordable. And I didn't mention there are other housing projects that are you know, being built in the city. Um, the planning department's going to be pulling together a report, reporting out on the permits that were issued and the units of affordable and market rate and housing across the city um, this spring. And so we'll have a better idea um, in a few months about how many units were constructed in total and what the um, income levels and affordability ranges were. Um, but there are, you know, there is certainly still market rate housing. Um, and as you know, uh, the planning department, we're currently working on developing a recommendation to take to council on a mixed income housing ordinance. And so we're trying to balance um, an inclusionary policy while looking at um, an in lieu fee structure, um, the fees currently help fund our housing trust fund that provides gap financing for many of these projects. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to bring a balance to um, pushing forward more affordable housing development, but at the same time not making it so restrictive that we're not going to continue to see any development. Um, there are also projects that are working with SHRA more directly. They just uh, released their, they release a NOFA two times a year. 
Um, they pulled together financing from a variety of different sources, including the city's house, um, housing trust fund money, as well as federal and state grants, and they um, issue RFPs out for um, gap financing. And so um, the majority of those projects are also affordable. Um, uh, most of the projects that get prioritized for that include um, some portion of permanent supportive housing. Um, and so those are projects that are moving forward. Um, and then we're also about to enter a new cycle of funding for the Affordable Housing and Sustainable Communities Grant. And so there's several projects that we're talking with on developing. Um, there's a transportation project component that goes with that grant. And so we're currently in the process of working with our Public Works Division and developing transportation projects to see if um, any of those projects can successfully be awarded um, this grant funding. The Bridge Housing Project was awarded $40 million from that grant, so it was it's a significant um, opportunity to bring more housing into the community. Um, so I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Yeah, and with additional context, thank okay. you. So do you guys have like a timeline for when um, that data, like you know, those ratios of affordable versus market will be online that will be publicly viewable? I believe it's April. I, yeah. And it'll be like listed out by project and then have the specific ratio for each one? I'm not sure if it's gonna be listed out project by project. The database will have that, but we can take a look at how that information's provided. All right, thank you. Thank you. I, I have a question, uh, and I don't know whether it fits under either of the homelessness or, or affordable housing topics, but is, is there any effort in the city to invest in preventing people from becoming homeless? Because it seems like if we could do that, we would be you know not contributing to the problem and helping people who are in places already. Yes, um, so the topic of prevention um, and diverting people from shelters is something that we've been talking a lot about. Um, the city did actually allocate um, $2 million from our third round of HAP funding towards prevention programming. Um, the state had really tight restrictions on who could be assisted with that third round, so we're looking to maybe swap that around with this most recent round so that we can assist more people. But that is something that the um, Sacramento Continuum of Care, um, which is overseen by Sacramento Steps Forward, has already started to put into place a little bit with um, housing problem solving funds and um, their coordinated access system has a component where it does look at assisting people who are um, at risk of becoming homeless. Um, and that's something that we're continuing to have conversations around as we develop this regionally coordinated homelessness action plan. So it is definitely um, something that is at the top of all of our minds and something that's critical to the overall homeless response system if we're going to um, end up you know, reducing the number of people experiencing homelessness. We need to stop the inflow as well. Yeah, yeah. And is there any measure you funding going into that, if that bucket of efforts? Not that I'm aware of. Thank you. Um, member Song. So, thank you for your presentation. And, and obviously, affordable housing is so important. And we, and I'm just going to um, talk about something that in Gardenland Northgate Neighborhood Association, we're a low income community. 
and um, they, about two years ago, a developer was, came in with a proposal to want to build a, a for-profit developer. And I, I think that's kind of the problem because um, the developers, anyway, I'll describe what happened. We, we were trying to um, get their 60 homes that there are small homes they're gonna build to make a few of them affordable for our community because we felt like they're gonna build these these nice homes, small, nice homes, but that people with resources, money, and maybe people outside of our community were gonna purchase them. And we wanted at least, we only asked for 10. Like, make them affordable, not market rate, because everyone says it's market rate, affordable for our community, which the average income is like 35000 a year. They, they, when we asked the developer, how much money does someone need to make to buy one of your homes, he said, well, at least 100000 to qualify. So we asked for ten, And the response was, uh, it's too, we can't do that. We'll lose money. And when we approached our city council, at that time it was city councilman Harris, he said that in order for a developer to want to do something like that is, is have everything, every time you build, and I know we used to have it, and I'm not going to get into that 15% thing because it's very controversial, but um, every time a developer is going to build homes or apartments that are less than market rate, the city has to come up with the gap funding for that. So it, it never, you know, the, the 70 homes are going in and they're going to be market rate and no one in our community, in our neighborhood, in our community, well, maybe, but they're probably not going to be bought by members in our community. And, that, and that's a, a missed opportunity so I like, I, I think that when staff is looking at, and I appreciate all the homes that you have, the 1,000 and something that are affordable and that there's, there's these other kind of um, homes or apartments or homes, because it isn't just apartments. I, there are so many people that would love to be able to purchase a home that they could afford and that there would be some, you know, it's a, I, I think you, I, I, I think the program that was, is being done in Oak Park is great. You know, in, that's a model. And, uh, and you know what I'm talking about, yeah. where they're the uh, doing finance and they're helping them purchase a home. I, I think for communities, low-income communities and people, it's, it's doing that would be an a great program, but how do you how do you bring that out of just a pilot in just Oak Park and put it in? There's so many communities in Sacramento that could benefit, and and I also, I, it's a very political issue. But these developers, if they're not encouraged, they all say we're doing it market rate, but but. $1,700 or $1,800 for a one-bedroom, someone that's making 
minimum wage, they'll never, you know, it's very hard for them to afford that. And then you add, and those are young people, when you add seniors that are on Social Security and limited income and their rent is going up or they're being asked um, to pay more or they might have to move, they will never get into another they won't be able to afford getting into another apartment or a home, and that's who we're seeing as homeless. So speaking to Chair Dickinson's point is the prevention piece is so key, and I really like you you're talking about housing solving funds because we all know of people in every community that's right on the borderline of of losing their apartment or their home and and seriously looking at an investment in that area and maybe that could be part of what measure you can do to support um, those efforts and then and I and it could be part of your strategy but I don't know um, we should be really looking at encouraging uh, nonprofit developers to to do more in Sacramento, because um, I because the for-profit developers, they're not gonna they're not going to if they're not forced to do it they're not going to build um, not less than market rate oh, homes or apartments, but maybe the nonprofit developers might. So that's my comments. Thank you. Hi, um, can you explain the metric or methodology that you guys use to determine if someone is, by your definition, like approaching homelessness? How do you quantify that? So HUD has some definitions. So um, at imminent risk of homelessness is within 14 days of homelessness. And then at risk of homelessness typically is within 30 days or more of homelessness. So there are prescribed definitions that um, HUD has developed in terms of funding availability and um, you know qualifications and eligibility. And so, um, as I mentioned, the previous rounds of state funding had, a, had the more narrow at imminent risk, which is within the 14 days, which means that somebody who um, receives a 30-day pay notice, right, they don't qualify because they're not within four, uh, 14 days. So they've expanded that to be more at risk. So they, that person would have to just wait 15 days until like? I, yeah, which is why we've kind of figured out, you know, where we'll try to uh, see if we can use the more um, flexible funding with the broad definition. I see. And then another thing you're mentioning here in terms of this, like, heuristic or statistic is, like, um, I received a notice meeting, I'm already del delinquent, right? Rather than, like, somebody who's struggling but paying, um, is there no capture of that group of individuals versus the ones who are already delinquent and do we have because I guess the reason I'm asking is um, as we've talked about earlier we need to figure out where funding can be most effectively spent right and so if we're going to talk about keeping people off the street or helping the people on the street get off the street how how do we fund most effectively and I'm trying to like understand uh, but but return on investment right and so do you guys have metrics of oh we are but for every dollar that you give us, we're keeping these many, this many people in a home. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? Like that would be a super useful statistic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have um, some? I don't have it off the top of my head, but because the continuum of care has begun some of that programming, they have reports they put out, and it's something that we can look into and provide. Yeah, okay, sounds good. And then I guess I, Brian just left, darn. Um, <laughs> but maybe you know as well, um, like of all the homeless individuals that we're helping, um, how many of them say, uh, I am basically identifying themselves as homeless because I can't afford the rent or I can't afford, or is it, you know, a large portion? I think I've seen statistics that say, but I, I don't yeah. know, maybe you can speak to it a little. Yeah, it is. I mean, so when we do the point in time count, um, there is a survey that goes with it. And um, that is, you know, one of the questions. And so um, in the 2022 point in time count, I don't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but it was um, when somebody asked, you know, like what, what if, if there was something that could be done to help you, you know, what would it be? Or, you know, how did you um, come into homelessness? The, the lack of housing was the top um, answer that was um, cited by most of the respondents of the survey. So I can look it up. It's in the point in time count report from 2022. You can um, probably find it and have that information, but it was a very high percentage. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So for, for someone to need um, an affordable housing, do they have to be homeless? No, oh. no. Okay. So. Yeah. So, yeah, so affordable housing speaks to, so there's different levels of the um, average median income. And so um, units get restricted at certain percentages. So like 80% of median, for example, or 60% or 50% of median, or even 100% of median is considered moderate. Um, And so um, people who are experiencing homelessness generally are falling into the extremely low income category, um, under 30% of the um, um, average median income of Sacramento. And so the state, as well as HUD, they have charts that they put out for all the communities in California stating what is the average median income and then what um, a one-person, two-person, three-person, four-person household, what that income level is for each of those income levels. So it's pretty prescribed. Um, and and set in terms of of what that means. But typically we're looking at 80% um, of the median income. So if a person was not like told that they have to leave a home in 14 or 30 days, they they will also be considered for the property that you've listed. Yeah, for the for the housing projects that are being built, you know, those are available, um, you know, pretty much to anyone who's looking for housing as long as they meet the um, income limits. So it's not restricted in terms of you had to have lived here or somewhere else prior to coming to those. Those are um, units that are going to be available on the market. Um, some projects will um, do a lottery. Um, the, there's a project that's opening up on Stockton Boulevard, the Heights on Stockton Boulevard. Um, they did a lottery um, for people to qualify, um, and I think they, you know, got quite a bit of interest um, from from their lottery, and they had to meet certain eligibility um, for, um, you know, qualifi- qualifying for the um, affordability ranges in those units. There are a lot of projects too, I will say, that use project-based vouchers. 
And so those are vouchers that are part of the project versus a voucher that's given to a person and the person has to find the units. These are projects that are, these are vouchers that are allocated to a project. And so the person going into the units with that project-based voucher has that voucher attached to the unit versus the person. Thank you. Said there are about a thousand affordable units in the pipeline. Those are units. Can you do you have a ballpark about how many people they could house? Uh, I I don't really. I I mean, some of them might have some two three bedroom. I don't know off the top of my head the unit counts or you know what like are they one bedroom two bedroom three bedrooms? Um, you know, as we move forward with each of those projects. That does get more solidified, but um, um, you know they're at least you know a one person, right? Many of them are studios, one bedrooms, and and up. So I'd say over you know over the number of units would be the number of people served. Great, thank you, uh, Member Georgios. Yeah, I just wanted to add. I did find it the number. It seemed that 44% um, of individuals who are experiencing homelessness said that providing more affordable housing is the best way to help them. Um, second only to that is at 19% more beds at emergency, emergency shelters. So not even half though the quantity. So I guess to bring up the, if we're gonna budget and we're, we're saying that we are spending you know, only one fifth on more affordable housing rather than, uh, I guess to Member Diaz's point, uh, maybe we should be upping that considering it seems to be one of the most important things to reduce homelessness and to help the currently homeless. More speakers in the queue on this item. Do we have any public comment? Thank you, Chair. I have one speaker slip uh, from those in chambers. Uh, Sarah Johnson. Hi, my name is Sarah Johnson. I'm a community organizer with a nonprofit developer, and I just wanted to reiterate a lot of the points that I heard. Um, that for many of the people that I work with, they have stated numerous times that having access to affordable housing would have prevented them from becoming unhoused. But our wait lists are years out for a lot of our properties. We have 19 properties and we're building more and we have wait lists on the ones that aren't even built yet because it is so difficult to get into affordable housing. There's such a need. There's so many people that need affordable housing that cannot access it because of long wait lists, expensive deposits, so many other factors. But I just wanted to reiterate that, you know, um, we even see, saw earlier with the presentation that there's a lack of beds in emergency shelters. And if we were able to get those people into affordable housing, then we would free up those beds as well, kind of continuing the cycle of allowing more space. Um, so I just wanted to thank you guys so much for your time and reiterate how much affordable housing is important to the residents of California who are um, low income or currently unhoused or looking for housing. Um, it would make such a difference. and I. I want to reiterate your point that there's such a, a stark difference in where the Measure U funding went in the previous years, and to just reiterate our support for allocating more towards affordable housing and the impact that it has on our residents. So thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Chair, I have no more speakers. Okay. Any other discussion on this? Okay. Um, our next item is Measure U Community Advisory Committee Members Report on Investment Committee. I don't think the Investment Committee met since our, okay. 
City Manager's Office report to the Measure U Community Advisory Committee. There is no report. Thank you. Uh, committee member comments, ideas, and questions. And just to reiterate from earlier, um, we, you all did talk about the 2020-2024 the 2024 work plan. If there were items that you wanted to modify, um, this is the point in the agenda to do that through the agenda log. Even though you passed um, the agenda log earlier, you were approving the agenda log that you had discussed in November. So um, whatever, if any new requests related to the agenda log come out of this discussion, we would bring that in March for your subsequent approval. Thank you for clarifying the unclear. Um, Member Pascal. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I wanted to say on behalf of the Budget and Policy Development Subcommittee, we learned today that <laughs> we have a pretty aggressive timeline um, that we need to meet to get our budget recommendations for the 2024-2025 fiscal year um, through this committee to the um, the city council's budget committee and then on to the council in time to be, um, uh, so then time for the council to consider our recommendations. And so we are going to be in the process of developing a draft of those recommendations between now and our next meeting, which is in March. And immediately following the subcommittee meeting, we'll then bring those recommendations to this committee for um, input and to be finalized pretty much immediately if we want to be on track to get our recommendations um, up the chain to the city council. <clears throat> so we learned um, also because that is not agendized on this um, committee's meeting that we can um, take input during this part of the agenda um, for uh, thoughts folks might have on what should go into our recommendations for next year. And um, Member Masias has uh, kindly agreed to um, be the drafter of the recommendations. Um, but if folks have comments they wanna provide now, we can't discuss them, but we can go around and have um, members give their thoughts on what ought to be included. Um, so that made sense. So I want to just uh, open it up. Maybe um, Member Masias has more to add. And um, myself and Member Seller. I just planning. wanted to clarify. So this is the full committee. So this full committee could discuss the subcommittee. It's just not the other way around. The subcommittee can't. Or, or because this is a Brown Act meeting, you can have all those Brown Act discussions. This is all being recorded as open to public comment. Um, you just would need to, I suppose, either do it in, op uh, in open, like now, or do it in, uh, in, in through an agenda through Ash in in the future. But this is the full committee, so you can discuss the full breadth of the of the measure you here. Okay, so I guess we can discuss, <laughs> but uh, that's to say we're collecting input. Um, and realized that uh, folks maybe hadn't thought about giving it tonight, but um, wanted to open it up if people do have um, thoughts that Member Masias can include in our initial draft. And if you had anything else to add. Just that Member Sal and I were discussing potentially working also on a survey for the, um, for the committee like we did last year about members' priorities or maybe the priorities of the of the members that appointed you or other things you want to highlight. We, 
We're going to talk to Ash about how we might get another survey out to committee members to do something like we did last year. And so um, as we go around for the discussion, discussion too, if you have thoughts about questions you think should be included in a survey to the committee, you could uh, bring those up too. Thank you. Uh, Member Gores. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I just want to reiterate um, Member Diaz's comments about um, us looking at um, increasing uh, funding for affordable housing. Um, I don't know if this is the appropriate time, but you know, uh, as far as the process of how we do go about that and lobbying for that, so I think it's important. I mean, all the information we got today, and I think it's something that we really—it's a heavy, heavy pull. But I think we really have to kind of work at it and kind of see what we could do to increase it. Thank you, uh, Member Diaz. Uh, I think folks know where my number one priority lies after today. Uh, I would just reiterate, I'd be interested in a survey if, if that was put together uh, where I might be able to better flesh out. We have to make cuts if we want to make increases somewhere else uh, and you know be able to give a bit more of a detailed view that hopefully will help with uh, writing of the letter in itself. Thank you. Member Georgioff. Can you repeat again, what was the timeline that you needed to get this in by? What was... Ash can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe um, what he's laid out is for the subcommittee to uh, discuss the, a draft at our March meeting, then immediately after come to this meeting and get the full committee's input on the draft. And then that would go in April to the budget and audit committee. Yes. I don't have any exact date, but that would be the goal, April. And then on to the council. Correct. And just, we don't have a February meeting, so that right. makes it a challenge. Um, and I, I want to um, endorse everything everyone has said about, um, you know, focusing on affordable housing, homelessness, preventing homelessness as, as sort of the core of what we're doing, but I also want two things that have been consistent recommendations that I think we should con continue to highlight. One is that um, um, asking for um, outcome-based metrics, not activity reports as, um, as the performance measures. And two, um, more information on the distribution of city funds, measure U funds, whatever we can get by council district and various socioeconomic, um, ethnic, um, geographic characteristics, which have been, uh, those have been previous recommendations, but I, I think, I, I just, I don't want to see us let go of those and, until they've had impact. And I've got member Bird. Um, I had to bring this up because it was kind of concerning when I heard the community members speak on expensive deposits for affordable housing. When I heard that, I, 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 it just made me wonder how that worked. Uh, I'm sorry. I, that kind of stuck with me. What was that? The so when she spoke on affordable housing, she, she said that many people could not even afford it. Or when she said 
that it was expensive, the deposit is expensive. Mm -hmm. To me, that's like, how can they even make it into affordable housing if the deposit is expensive? That was, cons that was very concerning for me, so. Yeah. How does house, that work? The housing deposits are typically more expensive, and I don't know if, if uh, oh, she left she, um, but could speak more about um, exactly what the deposits are, but they are, you know, typical deposits that landlords require, um, you know, with anybody so for any your, unit. Um, I do know that um, some of the housing problem solving and a lot of the programs that are out there to support people getting into housing do help cover the cost of security deposits. Um, and you know, like the first month's rent that um, a lot of units require. And so um, a significant amount of the funding that gets allocated to helping move people into housing typically will help cover those costs. I, I'm just curious, what is, do you know what the amount is typically, like a general amount that a person would have to pay to move yeah, into? Yeah, it varies, I think it varies by unit. Um, okay. So, like a fa like a three, a family of three. I I I wouldn't know. Okay, yeah. I was just just curious. Yeah. As it to depends how on that the works. landlord. I don't think there's any set. You know, if if you know, if I had a rental, I could ask for whatever you know security deposit I think is fair, right? So, so it would so. depend on more the developer, in in this case that you mentioned. Yeah, I'm not aware that there's any limitations or caps on what they can ask for secure, I mean, there might be. I mean, I, you know, if they put out an unreasonable amount that nobody can come up with, right, they're not gonna get tenants. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure what, if, the if there's any regulations around it and what the average is. Okay, that, I, I was just shocked to hear that, so I'm like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it does get expensive with the security deposit first month's rent. Even though it's yeah. affordable housing for people that are kind of, Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's why there's assistance typically that goes with that. Thank you. Thank you. So, couple couple thoughts. One is we we do want to do a survey just because the one we did was over a year ago, and some of you may may or may not have filled it out where we prioritized and then we make comments if you see in the report that um, was sent out, the staff report by Ash, and there's comments about it gets particular programs they'd like to see funded. So we'll definitely come up with questions, but we're also going to put in there that we should all be talking to our council person and getting from them what they think the priority should be because they're all gonna be fighting. For, we've all heard that they're gonna to wanna to fight it for our Measure U monies. And, and so we need to be clear from our council person what their priorities are and if there are any programs that, that they want to see listed or called out in our recommendations. So I think that's really important. And the other, the other point I want to make in the timeline, what I've seen happen in, the, in the, the years that I've been on Measure U is when we go, or not me, because I've never had to present in front of budget and audit or the city council, 
before it was chair, um, it was Flo who was our chair, and then it's been um, Chair Dickinson. No one shows up. And I, in my experience in attending city council meetings, it's the advocacy that makes the difference. So we know that the council is, is really struggling to find monies. And if we want a shift, if we're going to recommend reducing funding in one area and putting it in another area, it's going to require us advocating and having community members to come and advocate and support our position for it to happen. Otherwise, it will not happen. We'll re make a rem recommendation, and because they're being pulled in different directions, um, they may not, they say, you know, we, we're not going to pull money away from homelessness because it's such a political issue, or we're not going to pull money away from public safety or whatever. Um, so the advocacy is very key at the budget on audit and at city council and getting and, and showing up and writing letters and getting community members, and in particular to the city council. Um, so my other thought is um, uh, priority is the participatory budgeting from all accounts, and every time it get brought up, the, the mayor has said that he values that. It's very important. It was great because he wants the community to come and participate. It's a different way for the community to come in and build trust and all of, all of that. But when it comes down to saying, okay, we all agree with you, but we want a million dollars, which is nothing but a million dollars last the, our last cycle produced the, these wonderful programs that are getting, that are in the community and they're getting funding. And not only the programs, but the whole process itself was empowering for our communities to be able to contribute, to be able to participate. And then, and we haven't done, we haven't, we haven't done a, um, an outreach or public relations campaign saying, okay, we heard you, you voted on this, and these are the programs that were funded. That We haven't closed the loop on that, which needs to happen. Um, we should be getting another million, but if we don't do that advocacy and we don't get the community to come out and say, we want a million dollars funded for participatory budgeting, it isn't going to happen. And then my fear is if it doesn't happen this budget cycle. Well, you know, we don't need to do it again. It was a great, it was a great um, pilot and it was a great idea, but it, it may not ever get funded again. And I don't want to lose the momentum of what's been established. Well, it's already been two years, so we're already kind of losing momentum. I don't want to lose it again because of this budget cycle. And, and my experience is it's really who's out there advocating and speaking up for certain things that gets funded. So that's um, so that would be one thing for sure is the participatory budgeting. So that's it. Thank you. Member Georgioff. Yeah, uh, 
actually Member Sala was definitely hit on what I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, we, as a committee, we're here to um, influence, not make the decision, right? And so, like, when we make this report, we have to be fairly influential. And so, like, um, I think we, a lot of, a few of the members here on this committee are appointed by the, uh, you know, our representatives. And so, like, do we have open communication with, with them to see what it is that would help them in making these decisions better, right? Like, what can we provide to them to, like, influence them uh, in a way that they would view as effective, right? <clears throat> I think we heard the statistics are something of, like, statistics we've seen, not, like, program results or something like that. Um, definitely agreed. I think we've tried to get some today, um, like, dollar amount ROI on certain um, programs, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, basically, when we make these recommendations, we also need to be considering not just Measure U dollars, but also the general fund, because these dollars go to places, and we need to, in order to make our best suggestions, we need to get a whole picture, a holistic picture, of where all this money is going. And so we have a fantastic dashboard that Ash put together. Um, and it helps to show like where this funding is going, but it's difficult to identify the actual ratios of funding in this city because we don't get the eyes on the whole picture. And so although it looks like, oh, there's you know maybe very little money going into police, for example, um, there's actually a ton of money going into police um, when you look at it holistically. And so we have like $5,800,000 going into the hiring pipeline of police department, which is like, okay, we only have $3 million going into affordable housing. Like surely there's something a little skewed here. And if we have the ability to influence any of that, I think it would be good. I'm just wondering how can we make our messaging more effective? Because it seems like in the past I've also heard, you know, sort of like a, a rumbling of this of this committee being like, you know, they don't they don't listen to us. Why don't they listen to us? And so I'm just like curious as to how can we be more effective. You mentioned advocacy. I think that's very important. But what can our official letter bring? You know, what can how can we formu formulate that in a way that's, you know, more effective? I'm wondering if people have thoughts on that. Thank you, Good, uh, Member Macias. Um, yeah, to your point, I mean. Something we talked about at the, the subcommittee was also looking back and thinking about what was promised to voters with Measure U, what, you know, what was said in the ballot argument, what was said, what's said online. I mean, how is it, what were voters presented to and is the spending meeting that spirit today? Um, but they are, I mean, as Ash explained to us at the meeting, you know, general operating funds and, and they are free to spend it on other things, but I th we thought at least putting that kind of onus on the city to look at, is this at least what was promised to, to the voters who approved it? Um, I was curious if, I mean, we can include this in the survey too, but if anyone wanted to share, we, in the, in the last time around, I believe we went above the million dollars previously in terms of our ask to the city council for participatory budgeting in the thinking that we should be saying this was a success and that that's a reason to go, to go bigger and not, um, and not to stay with the, the $1 million that had been been done the first time around. Anyway, I just thought wanted to see it, what others thought about that. Thank you. Member Ruam. I guess I'm, I was looking for clarification. Um, with curious um, as to how influential it can be, kind of what you're talking about, because I believe the council's probably already talking about their budget. So if we're getting to them in March or April or May, 
have they already made a decision? And you guys are also passionate about this, and I'm still learning, so I apologize. But I'm like, how big of an influence can we have? And then I was there when um, you presented the 2324 budget, and I felt like it kept. I felt like it was almost dismissed, and I could misconstrue it, but it was like it was mixed with the general funds. Well, Measure U is part of general funds, so I'm just curious how it's different, and how we can make sure that Measure U still stands on its own and is not just mixed and dismissed when a recommendation, everyone's giving their time to make sure that we're representing these different areas of the state, like, or counties, or, you know, so how, I'm just, I'm confused a little bit and want to make sure no, that. You, no, you're not confused. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm funny. you're not at all confused. And I, I have to remind myself and all of us, we are an advisory committee. I mean, we are, the, our, our impact is only as good as our advice and as effective as our advocacy on behalf of our advice. So I think this discussion is really important and figuring out how to make a few hard-hitting, crisply articulated recommendations that we back up with some advocacy effort behind the scenes with our council members. I mean, those of us on this, well, a good, you know, eight of us, nine of us represent council, are represented by council districts. Some of us don't have a council member, but, um, but, um, but I mean, I think I think we've tried, may have tried to do too much in our recommendations, and I'm sort of going back to my professional life, which is one page, lots of white space is how you communicate with decision makers. So figuring out how to get from here to there, I think, is important. But I think um, the challenge with this and the challenge to keeping committed to this is that they don't have to take our advice and often don't and and that that doesn't feel good but they took our advice on on the participatory budgeting pilot project so um, and so, but you know you're not missing anything and <laughs> you, you got it new but I was like it doesn't make sense thank you though for calling it out. Uh, member Bird. So um, Member Salas spoke about coming to the city council meetings would help to advocate if I guess educating other people in our community to come. The meetings, are they every Tuesday at 7 or 6? They start at 5. So they're every Every Tuesday, Tuesday at 5. five. And I know I think he said that helps if we come and speak or encourage our community. Yeah. yeah, so I'll give you an example. About a month ago, there was an issue about a dog park that the city council, they had the staff had made recommendations about where they wanted this dog park to be at. And the community, and there was two communities. One wanted, they, they were at odds with each other. There was 30 people that showed up and gave testimony. No here, yes here, whatever. So now, instead of adopting the recommendation, staff's recommendation, 
there was a task force. They're going to relook at this and, and get more feedback and reconsider what was being proposed. That's the power of getting people to come in and, and testify. And it was about a dog park. It was important to them, and they were passionate. So how do we encourage that same kind of passion in our community about, about where this money is being spent? Thank you. So it's bringing the right people with us that can speak up. Basically. Yeah, so if, if each of us, there's eight of us, and we try to get, let's just say, three people from our community, four people from our community, that, that, that's a, a good amount of people to line up and give support for what we're advocating for. And then, um, and if they don't um, support our recommendations. The next committee, we come back with our community members and express, not we, but the community express their dis, um, their disappointment with the city council not honoring the recommendations of our Measure U. And I, I, if, I think if they see that Measure U commission has support from that community, they will look at us in a different way. So thank you. My thoughts. Thank you. Um, Member Pascal. Um, uh, just to the point a few different people have made about how we can be more effective in advocacy, that's something we talked about discussing in our next um, subcommittee meeting as well. Um, and I know folks can't necessarily participate in that meeting, but I wonder if we could include that maybe as part of the survey, a question about you know, what ideas people have for spreading the word about our recommendations. And I can make a couple more appointments to the subcommittee for those who might be interested. So you, you can let me know on that. Um, Member Sala. Thank you. I just want to go back to the point that Ash made. So our budget subcommittee um, was approved for three meetings, the May being the last one. And my concern is, and I know that it said that we we can make, we can request special meetings, but I would really like to see us have that it not end, that the calendar not end, that we're approved only up until May. And if there's a way for us to get additional meetings on the books uh, for the budget committee, because I'm hopeful that we'll get funding for uh, participatory budgeting. If we do, that committee is going to be the committee that's going to um, will be an important piece of, of leading those efforts along with city staff. And there needs, you know, there's a lot of learning that happened during the pilot. So, and, and it was mentioned that we can get special meetings, we can request, but you can see 
we request it, and then by the time the next PMP meets, and by the time it gets approved, we're the end of the year is here, and and that. So I would be it would be proactive on our part to try and get a way to get additional meetings for that committee scheduled. And I'm not, it's not clear how, I, how that happens. I don't wanna wait for us to re request a special meeting because it, the process is cumbersome. Look how long, it took us a year just to get this, our, our, our subcommittee approved. Yeah, I'm not sure how we get more meetings. Um, <clears throat> at the November 14th, uh, 2023 City Council meeting, uh, City Council approved the um, the uh, commission and committee uh, calendars for the year, um, for the calendar year 2024. Um, at this time, I don't believe that they are um, uh, taking a, a, an amended calendar. Um, but again, um, as I said at the subcommittee meeting, um, uh, staff can work with the office of the city clerk um, to uh, possibly schedule a um, special meeting if there is you know, uh, urgent work that the uh, um, commission or committee needs to uh, accomplish that can't oh. be done at a regular oh. meeting. So we don't have to get it approved by PMP for a special meeting? Uh, no, it would need to be approved by the Office of the City Clerk given oh. if there's uh, room on the calendar for that. Um, and if, um, you know, the, the work is okay. urgent to uh, uh, necessitate that. Thank you for that uh, information. Uh, Member Macias. Um, just to the, to the point that Member Pascal was making, can we... Do we need to put on, or can we put it on the agenda for the next meeting, uh, a conversation about not just not just our recommendations, but also what we're going to do with them and what we, you know, our strategy for um, sharing that? On the agenda log? Abs in, in, in theory, yes. I think there's, part of what I'm hearing is kind of this advocacy component, so I, you know, I might just work with the city attorney to make sure we're not crossing any lines. But in general, I think what you're getting at is public communications of your recommendations. And certainly, I think we could consistent agenda. with our mission to do outreach and communication. Sure. Yes, exactly. That sounds good. And then um, I don't know if we just about to your point about getting more meetings. Is that something we can we put on our next agenda to discuss and to vote on like that we a request? Like if we need a meeting, we could, you know, cross that bridge when we come to it. I so I will just say the the idea of um, having additional regular meetings would require amendments to the formal calendar that council approved, and so the only way to schedule additional meetings is for them to be special meetings. And the best way to uh, successfully get a special meeting approved is to demonstrate kind of the special circumstances for that meeting, whether it's related to timing of the budget or some other sort of exigent circumstance. Um, I just, I, I don't see, I mean, anything's possible. Well, I mean, yeah. council could, you know, 
potentially um, approve additional regular meetings, but that would just be my suggestion for this committee is more on a as-needed basis um, to identify those opportunities and to provide some justification because I will say when um, some of the initial requests for the three subcommittees went to P and the Personnel and Public Employees Committee last year, a lot of what was discussed was this desire to see your work plan, which you subsequently produced, but really they were they were really trying to make a decision based on okay what is the what's the strategy and does the, what's the need and you know does requesting these additional committees or these additional meetings does it align with that need and that's where they through that discussion ended up scheduling the special meeting um, forget what month it was maybe May there was a, there was a month where you had two meetings of the full committee and that was kind of their rationale is they recognize okay you need to approve budget recommendations and so. We're certainly, uh, they were certainly amenable to, to providing that opportunity. So I think that's sort of the place that we're at is you have sort of this set calendar for 2024, regular meetings um, for every subsequent special meeting. Um, I think it, it's really incumbent on the committee to kind of identify specific special circumstances that would really warrant that request. Okay, I mean, I think the concern is we, we already know we're too, like starting in January is late and that we'd want to start, whether or not we get the participatory budgeting, it seems like we'd want to start talking about this in the fall, I mean much, or right after that, the next budget is passed. I mean, we're only meeting once a month and and just have limited opportunity. It's just, it's hard to, it, okay, we can wait again until January of 2025 and, and then we'll all come back and say, Aren't we a little late here to start talking about this in January 2025? Well, I, I think the challenge was also that we had specific subcommittees. I don't remember what the third one was, but we have specific charges, one is one of which they get and paid attention to, which is making recommendations on the budget. But we also have a specific charge with respect to working with staff on outreach with respect to Measure U, and that's, I mean, that, that's, you know, that, that was for us was participatory budgeting, but that's a really, really specific initiative underneath that umbrella of, that's in the ordinance of outreach. And so I think maybe some, we need to figure out a way to articulate that, that the subcommittee, um, establishment was really important and responsive to part of our charge, um, but that the other part, which is outreach, needs to be dealt with as part of the regular business of that subcommittee, which is why you need more than three meetings. Um, so, so we need to think about how to how to start articulating that case. But I mean, I, I but I just think that in their heads, we're all about recommendations on the budget and they're not looking at that second part of our charge. And we haven't been as explicit about that second part of our charge as perhaps we needed to be, or have needed to be. I've got um, Member Georgioff. Um, I was just curious, maybe this is a question for Angel, but uh, the seven people who are on that subcommittee can just meet, right? Like, it's not a full quorum, and so it's not, doesn't have to be. No, if they're on the sub, I need counsel to listen to this. Um, if, City if they're on the subcommittee and there are, right now there are uh, five on the subcommittee, right. quorum is three. 
and they can't have serial discussions with the rest of us or with one another. Right, okay. With the rest of us or one another, okay. So right. one another included in that, I guess. So the seven cannot meet arbitrarily, even though it's not a quorum of this committee. No, because okay. they're on. The, they're now on the subcommittee, which has its own. Its own. That, that's correct. Unless life. the unless this meeting is in session, so that wouldn't apply when when the full when we're in session for this one. Then they can all you can all meet and chat on whatever you want. But the seven on the subcommittee, or the current five on the subcommittee, can't meet offline. They have to meet under the. That's that's correct. They have to meet either Brown in the Act subcommittee or in this committee. Uh, but what about if members of this committee, just five, want to talk and meet? Not a quorum. There's no agenda. Right, so it doesn't prevent you guys from talking amongst each other. Um, that's not what the Brown Act is. Um, you, you, five of you could always meet. You just can't talk about anything related to the, oh. um, for instance, if you guys are meeting to watch like a football game or something, <laughs> that's acceptable. <laughs> no. You just can't talk business, if that oh, makes sense. God. Okay. <clears throat> Could the members of this committee that are not on the subcommittee meet with one another? Uh, isn't that the same question? Sorry. It, discuss committee business. You just can't conduct business. So, yes, you could go, like, for instance, to a San Francisco 49ers game, and, and that'd be fine. Okay. Um, I have no more speakers in the queue. Do we think we've given our subcommittee and our, particularly our scribe, sufficient guidance to have them have a productive meeting and good content coming to us in March? Okay. Um, any other comments, ideas, and questions? One last thing. I, I, it sounds like there's an open seat for the subcommittee. For oh, there's an open seat for the subcommittee yes. for the one remaining meeting. Um, or, I think yeah, there's two, two, two remaining, remaining meetings. Okay. Right. Uh, happy to be a part of that. If, okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it has to go through a motion. No, I get, to, cool. I get to just mm -hmm. <laughs> take action. Um, uh, any public comments on matters not on the agenda? Thank you, Chair. I have one speaker slip, uh, Mr. Lambert Davis. I walked down, I want to uh, make people aware that during the holidays season, our cheesecake business, which is called To the Bay and Back Cheesecakes, it was founded by our family. We're from a quote unquote underserved community, and I want you to hear what my granddaughter did that took us viral. I hope I got it right. It was, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I didn't even understand TikTok or Instagram until they took it home, and they took it home during the holidays. I hope it's 
feel here. Maybe it's not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.